You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode-by-episode and movie-by-movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.7, On the Other Side of Darkness, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and as winter settles in here in New York City, I simply want to wrap myself in blankets until I resemble a human caterpillar, and snooze until, let's say, late March. And I'm Nina, finally ready to move on from Char's counterattack and excited for season 5. This is the last word on CCA, I'm sure no one will ever feel the need to talk about it ever again. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 587 patrons and subscribers. Wow, still a bit in shock about that. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. Sid the Kid, Ryan S, David H, Will M, Vien LC, Cormac 99, Andrew K, Kyle M, Frankie Teardrop, Tacos is my personality, Jonathan F, Seho Fuhai, Grishka, Samantha S, Yanis, Numi Lee GR, David A, Zachary DCV, Charles R, and Kitty Rules. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And a special thank you to Ryan S. for sending us a book from our wish list. We've been focused on the Patreon lately, but there are other ways of supporting us if you aren't in a position to subscribe. We have a wish list full of books and office supplies, a Kofi for one-time support, and we can always use more reviews on whatever service you use to listen to MSB. Links to all the different ways to support us are on our website at gundampodcast.com support. The episode this week is a little bit of a hodgepodge, as we have one final guest interview, we have some research pieces, and we're going to wrap up by answering some questions about this season. There are a few things we'd like to clarify, a few things we didn't get a chance to cover in the rest of the episodes, and of course, everybody wants to know our feelings about the mobile suits. So stay tuned after the research for some of that. Due to the length and complexity of this episode, the conclusion to the Titans News Network Radio Free Shangri-La Saga will not be on this episode. It will instead come out next week as its own dedicated mini-episode. And without further ado... We are very excited to welcome back friend of the podcast, Iraj. Hello. Long-time listeners will remember Iraj from previous science-heavy <laughs> research discussions. Iraj is our physics consultant, and so we're very glad to have him on the program to talk about Char's counterattack. I actually wanted to start off by asking you what you thought about the movie. Oh, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was very cool when we were talking about it right after watching it. Definitely my first impression was 
that it's definitely much more polished than everything I've seen so far mm-hmm. in Gundam. Clearly, a lot of work went into it. And yeah, the drama is pretty great. And um, I love. I just loved the the ending and the everyone banding together to save Earth. Uh, even it really the bad gets guys. you. It was amazing. And obviously, the robots fighting. Oh was yeah, very I mean, good. Yeah, <laughs> when they punch each other. Yeah, when the weapons come off and it's all. Well, the gloves stay on, I guess, but you know. Mobile suit martial arts. <laughs> so yeah, I would say overall good reaction. It was interesting going into a movie specifically looking for science things to talk about. I would say usually I try to do the opposite where I try to suspend disbelief and I'm trying to enjoy what I'm watching because there's nothing more insufferable than science people saying, oh, you can't have sound in space. But, you know, that's my job. So sure. that's why I'm here. That is why we asked you on. Uh, this is not going to be a nitpicking session. <laughs> yeah. We are not going to pick out every time when they had wind in space that's not there or every time they mess up the it gravity about three times <laughs> <laughs> i stand corrected we are in fact going to count up every time that they make that mistake um we're mostly going to be talking about some of the ways in which the physics of life in space really defines the stakes of the movie. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking nuclear explosions. We're going to be talking orbital mechanics. We're going to be talking impact of asteroids with planets. Mm-hmm. And along the way, we might complain about some mistakes and uh, theorize about a few minor tidbits. Yes, some good theorizing here. Now, I want to start with one of the big problems we encountered here, which is that as far as I can tell, no one actually knows how big Axis is. Yeah, as we were watching the movie, it was something that kept bugging me. And I think we talked about it at length afterwards. If you're trying to figure out what they're trying to do with this asteroid and what that takes and what the stakes are, you really have to understand how big the asteroid is. And we are told by the characters that if the asteroid hits, there will be a nuclear winter. Earth will be uninhabitable for people for some amount of time. And we just sort of have to accept that as true. But if we knew the size of the asteroid, presumably we could figure this out with some more precision. Or at least compared to real world events, like the famed asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, the saddest event in Earth's history. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so that asteroid, if you look it up, was somewhere between 10 to 15 kilometers across. For the Americans out there, that's up to like 10-ish miles, I guess, across. and um, thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> I had started out looking, just searching online to see if there are actually canonical uh, specifications for the size of Axis. Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, there aren't any. I wasn't able to find them. Uh, so we are doing our best guesswork based on the information in the movie uh, and some some calculations. Yeah. But the thing that's surprising is uh, from two kind of different directions, we reached similar estimates, which I found very encouraging. And so, yeah, uh, we were kind of looking at, if there's a couple of scenes in the movie that give you a hint as to how big Axis is. So the main one that I was focused on was there's one scene where they're on Earth and looking up at the sky and Axis is blotting out a part of the sun. And then there's a scene later in the movie after Axis has been split in half from the explosions where you can see again, it's kind of in the sky and a significant size compared to the sun and like other things you see in the sky. Uh, by looking at the like size it takes up in the sky and comparing it to the sun, you know the sun is obviously much bigger than Axis, but it's also much further away, and you can just do some ratios. And it turns out that Axis should be like maybe 
half a kilometer across, one kilometer across, something like that. And you were able to estimate the distance of Axis from the Earth at that point by uh, noting that this is shortly before it starts burning up in the atmosphere. Right. And so you were able to figure out where it would have been relative to the Earth for, yeah. that, for that to start happening. Right. Stuff starts burning up in the Earth's atmosphere about 80 kilometers away from the surface. And yeah, taking some generous estimates, uh, you can say that that would mean Axis has to be about a kilometer across, maybe. Um, and then, Tom, you looked at a different scene. Where yes. When Char's fleet first arrives at Axis and they open up with a massive bombardment, we do see a section of the asteroid with a couple of Federation cruisers. These are Salamis Chi class cruisers, and these are ships of known length. So I was able to- If you're to... Tom, that is. <laughs> <laughs> They're around 200 meters long. So I was able to take that section of Axis and figure out where on the Axis asteroid it fits and then do some image manipulation to match it up, keep the ratios all accurate, and then compare the size of the Salamis Chi cruiser to the size of Axis as a whole. And so I reached an upper bound uh, of around four and a half kilometers across. This is consistent in a lot of ways. So like, yes, that's a bigger estimate than the other one, but you know, all of this is very approximate. It's cool that we got to even within an order of magnitude. But then the uh, the really interesting result is that Yes, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs was like 10 kilometers across, but also it is noted in the movie that they have to add a bunch of nuclear warheads to the asteroid to achieve what they want. And so I feel like this is actually pretty consistent. We found also some like papers from, I forget, like 2007 or something like that, where they worked out that you would get an ice age like drop in temperature by exploding something like a third of the world's nuclear arsenal. And let's just say the nukes they have in Gundam are just a lot more powerful than the ones we have now at an asteroid. I think that's all very consistent. I don't know exactly how the numbers line up, what they have in the future versus what they have now, what was expended during the war. But it is the case that practically every nuclear weapon that humanity possesses at that moment was stored at this Luna 2 base. Mm. And so Char's fleet has stolen basically every nuke in existence okay and loaded them onto access except for that handful well and we also know they successfully already dropped fifth luna on the surface so they've achieved some of the cooling effect they wanted and the additional dropping of axis or half of axis is meant to sort of make up the difference yeah so that was actually surprisingly consistent their drawings in different scenes and the resulting damage all seems to like work out pretty well so good on that yeah so you would say that based on the information we were able to cobble together for this that if they had actually succeeded in dropping axis it probably would have had the impact that they're looking for yeah i mean i think the thing you have to realize is just that gravity is really powerful and asteroids are really heavy and so <laughs> i feel like it doesn't actually maybe take that much because like Using our own weapons to create nuclear winter seems very difficult, and we have to use our whole nuclear arsenal. But if you just drop a heavy thing from really high up, that's that's just a lot of energy right there. I guess you just don't need that ridiculously large of an asteroid. Yeah, we've talked before, uh, a long time ago now, but about the Rods from God weapons program, which was the idea of just putting a bunch of metal rods in satellites in space and then dropping them in various places on the Earth. And it would have essentially the same payload as an absolutely massive bomb, mm -hmm. but it would just be a, a rod of metal. That's amazing. 
That's not a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a bad idea. Right, right, right. But it would probably work. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and Iraj, you had calculated approximately how heavy you think Axis would be based oh, on the numbers, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then if it's about a kilometer across, and assuming it's made of essentially the same stuff the Earth is, which is true of most most asteroids and stuff are made, made of similar rocks and things, it would be about a billion tons. <whistles> yeah, which is heavy. So that sounds that sounds not good. Yeah. Which brings us to another thing I wanted to talk about, which is the the engines that mm. they put on Axis. That's right, because it is not just gravity right. acting on this asteroid. Yeah, so there's a few things going on with these engines. They talk about having nuclear engines, right? And so my very first reaction to that was like, oh, that that's kind of silly because, yeah, we have things like nuclear submarines in the real world, but those... You're not actually doing anything with nukes at the back of the submarine. You just have a normal nuclear reactor and use that to power a propeller. And so that's normal. But then I remembered this crazy thing I read about a while back called the Daedalus Project, which it turns out Tom and Nina have spoken about during previous uh, episodes of the show. I believe it was in episode 2.26, if anyone wants to go back and listen to the full research piece again. But we can give you the highlights here. Yeah, the highlights are basically that back in the day... In the late 20th century, people at NASA were very imaginative and uh, had, I guess, a lot of free time on their hands. And they were thinking about ways you could get a spaceship to actually go to speeds that are similar to the speed of light if you want to actually do you know, interstellar travel. And so they came up with this plan where all you would need to do is blow up a bunch of tiny, tiny nukes under this like huge steel plate and then attach a spaceship on top of the plate. And then the nukes would like push the ship up. This is obviously a vast oversimplification, but but that's the basic idea. And they worked out you could actually make this happen. And it, since the nukes would be really tiny, if you have a good amount of fuel, you could keep this going for quite a while. And it seems like what they have on Axis is quite similar to this idea. Um, so they have these like nuclear pulse engines. One thing I managed to figure out is how much thrust these things should be able to do. And this is, again, extremely approximate, so I don't want any angry scientist uh, <laughs> calling me. But uh, we looked at one of the explosions of one of the nukes, which, Tom, you estimated was a few hundred meters across, right? Yes. Luckily, there are lots of shots of the engines and of the uh, blasts from the nuclear pulses. And so I was able to compare that to the size of Axis, which we had previously calculated, to get a uh, diameter of the explosion that is around 600 to 650 meters. Yeah. And on the other hand, Daedalus was a few tens of meters across. So you can say something like, if the diameter of these things is about 10 times more than the diameter of the Daedalus explosions, then in some sense you can say the volume of them is the power of three bigger than that, which is a thousand times bigger, right? So if the way volumes work, right, is if I take a cube and I make each of its sides 10 times bigger, the volume is going to go up by a factor of a thousand, right? So if you say the volume of these explosions is about a thousand times bigger, maybe the thrust is about a thousand times bigger. So, okay, each of the engines on axis has a thousand times the thrust of the Daedalus rocket. And there's four of them. So like you take 4,000 times that and you can look up the Daedalus thrust and it was something like 7 million Newtons. And so that all comes out to something like 10 to the 10 Newtons, which sounds like a lot. But as I said before, the thing weighs a billion tons. So you can actually only make it go at 
0.01 meters per second squared, almost a thousandth of like Earth gravity acceleration. So really, gravity is doing the work here. Yeah. The engines, it's not like they're ramming Earth so much as the engines are bringing it into a position where the gravity from Earth can grab it and do the rest of the work. Right, exactly. This is something you have to remember about everything we do with rockets when back in the day when we used to send people to the moon, when we had ambition as a species. <laughs> um, the, when you When you send a spaceship into space, the hardest part is getting it out into the atmosphere because you're fighting gravity, right? That's why we have ridiculous devices like the Saturn V rocket or, you know, the big things that SpaceX is building right now or whatever. Or in this movie, we have the huge mass driver at Hong Kong, which has not just the mass driver, but it also has a rocket assisted sled. It has an extra like launch vehicle for the shuttle. You know, they're, they're putting in a lot of work. Yeah, exactly. Like getting stuff to space is really, really hard. But once you're in space, you actually don't need extremely powerful engines to get around because you're not really fighting anything. Um, and also extremely powerful engines are heavy and like they use a lot of fuel and things like that. So at least the way uh, we do space travel at this point is usually everything you're doing in space is nudging things around and then using gravity to do whatever you need to do. So like uh, slingshotting, right? You'll like send a ship towards the sun and then make it slingshot around the sun and use the sun's gravity to accelerate it to get to places far away in the solar system. You don't usually just point wherever you want to go and just fire your thrusters in that direction because that's going to be a huge waste of energy. You're going to be fighting all these gravitational fields all the way. It's better to just use them to your advantage, right? And um, that's one thing I've always liked about Gundam is that they are not so far in, into the future that the engines are so powerful that they can ignore all of that. They really do... Uh, from time to time and when they're thinking about it, incorporate those orbital mechanics into the way the story flows. When watching the movie, there was something I noticed that I was initially uh, thought was kind of inconsistent. But then after we spoke about it afterwards, I kind of realized it was actually pretty smart the way they did it. When you see Axis for the first time, when they're turning on the engines and getting it towards Earth, they point it literally at Earth and they're just, you know, going for it. Very cinematic. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a really cool scene. But scientifically speaking, my impression when I saw this was, oh, Axis is probably orbiting Earth. Most stuff that's near a planet is orbiting that thing. Otherwise, it would fall into it. And so if it's orbiting Earth, what you would want to do is not point it towards Earth if you want it to fall into Earth. If anyone here's played a Kerbal Space Program, they would know what I'm talking about. Uh, that's a wonderful game, by the way, to understand orbital mechanics. Are you being paid? Because if you're being paid by them, we have to make a disclaimer. Oh, I have not been paid by them. I've just, I've actually wasted many hours of my life. So in <laughs> fact, they owe me money. <laughs> um, so yeah, what happens is if you're orbiting something, right, you have uh, usually some force that's pulling you towards the planet, right? Whether it's gravity or if it's, you know, a rock on a piece of string that you're spinning around your head. It's the tension of the rock, uh, whatever it is. So you have some force that's called centripetal, right? Which points towards the center. And then you have your momentum that's kind of like keeping you spinning around, right? And so you have to somehow reduce the amount of momentum you have and that way you're going to then fall in. So what you would do is essentially put on the brakes. So that would mean that axes would have to thrust opposite the direction they were orbiting Earth. And then they would just fall in. And gravity, as we've established, accelerates you much, much more than these thrusters could anyway. So then when you fall, you'd have a tremendous amount of energy. But then it turns out, you mentioned that Axis lives at a Lagrange point near Earth, right? Which is not 
orbit in Lagrange points are the only places where you can kind of sit in space and stay there relative to the objects near you. And so then it makes total sense that if it was at a Lagrange point, it would initially point itself towards Earth, fire its thrusters a bit, and then probably like turn them off because they're just kind of waiting for it to fall into Earth, which is all very cool and consistent. They're just kind of letting it fall in. And so then the only other scene where we see stuff relevant to this is when the breakup happens, right? And then we're shown on this kind of a computer screen that they have that the second piece of axis is still going to fall into Earth. And you see there's like this diagram of an orbit. Clearly, Axis had been orbiting Earth, right? When they thrust away from the Lagrange point, they had maybe missed Earth by a little bit. And the plan was probably to orbit for a while and then thrust appropriately to, for Axis to fall in. And when the explosion happened, again, this is all scientifically consistent. The explosion did that for one of the halves of Axis. It slowed it down enough that then it was going to fall in. Yeah, I think one of the characters actually says, oh, the explosion was too big and it braked the back half. Exactly. Yeah, that was actually really cool. And also leads into the coolest scene in the movie where they're trying to stop the asteroid from falling onto the Earth. This brings up one of the problems that I actually have with the way this movie is visually depicted. And I'm not going to call this a mistake exactly, but when Amaro tries to push Axis away, mm -hmm. it looks like he's getting in front of it and trying to push it back. Yeah. Which seems like it would be the worst plan under <laughs> these circumstances. Yeah, 100%. They're like pushing from any direction except that one would work better. Yeah. As you learn in karate, when there's a punch coming towards your face, you don't try to stop it. You deflect it. Right. And right. I mean, his plan fails. Right. If he had taken high school physics. <laughs> Which is weird because he's very uh, tech savvy. And I mean, he's not an engineer, but he works closely with them and understands a lot of what they're doing. And he's got to know about orbits and stuff. He flies <laughs> yeah. a mobile suit. He does calculations for the like for navigation yeah. early on in the movie. For him to push the asteroid from that end, he would have to exert enough thrust to overcome gravity. And the weight of the asteroid, which we've already established, is enormous. And yeah. not just enough to overcome its momentum, but to have enough to like push it away from the Earth yeah. after that. Yeah, that's that's a lot. I don't think the mobile suit can do that. But the power of human will yeah. can. Yeah, that's... Which brings me to my next question. Um, <laughs> as a physicist, what's your understanding of the mechanical properties of the power of human will? Well, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing I learned from this movie is that this is an understudied area of physics. <laughs> Clearly, it's an immense untapped energy source. Really, in this movie, Char's motivation is actually to test the tensile strength of the human will. What do you think his motivation is for testing it? In oh, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. I oh, don't think. Okay. <laughs> I don't think Shar Aznable is much of a scientist. Mm, shame. But the joke hides a kernel of truth, as do all good jokes, <laughs> because I do think Shar and Amaro have a disagreement about how strong the collective power of human will is, and yeah. whether multiple human wills can combine or not. Yeah, I guess in a very literal sense, they do disagree multiple times in the movie about whether humans are capable of saving the planet. There's that literal physical fight they have where Amura at one point screams like, oh yeah, human ingenuity will save us and things like that, right? And that's, I guess, in a very literal way, what's being tested at the end where Amura just like believes that the human will can collectively save the planet from this asteroid. I guess it's a very exaggerated metaphor for the global warming or for whatever destruction of the planet. We just have to put our will together and push the asteroid away 
doing way more work than we would need to do if we just pushed it in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> That's a powerful metaphor <laughs> with so many layers to it. Yeah. But that raises an interesting question, which is, what if he hadn't succeeded? What if the asteroid had hit? What would happen? I think people are familiar with the idea of nuclear winter or just the idea of what happened to the dinosaurs, right? The basic thing that happens, and this happens when you have big asteroids that hit the Earth, when big volcanoes go off. This even happens when you have very large forest fires or other you know, fires, um, is as people know, all of the heat that we experience is taken from solar radiation. Like the Earth is hot deep under the crust, but that doesn't account for most of the day-to-day -day warmth that we experience. The sun heats up the Earth and then that like radiates back in the form of heat, right? And so uh, it's quite simple. If you get a good amount of dust particles in the air, those are going to block out the sun and then the Earth cools down. And so this happened after the asteroid hit during the time of the dinosaurs. And basically what happens is not only cooling, but also if you have less sunlight, plants don't grow as well. This messes up the whole food chain. Plants and small animals start dying and then bigger animals can't survive anymore, etc. So it's like you get ecological collapse. Um, but here they're also talking about like longer term things. So like if you have sustained reduction of like a few degrees Celsius of the Earth's temperature, then you can set off cycles of like another ice age or something like that happening, right? Because as we all know too well from everything we hear about the impending doom of global warming, our ecosystem is maintained by these like very unstable cycles, right? And so if you disrupt them, there's all sorts of like different uh, vicious cycles that you can set off. And I'm not an expert on this, but I would, I think, I would suspect that maybe global cooling is one of them. And that's why things like ice ages happen. Because it's not like you have a blanket of dust that was over the earth for thousands of years. I forget how long the last ice age was, but it, it's kind of become self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've heard a lot recently about, for instance, air currents, wind patterns breaking down as a result of temperature changes of just a couple of degrees Celsius. Yeah, exactly. And yet they have these massive effects on weather distribution, water. And of course, that creates a a self-sustaining and, in fact, self-accelerating crisis. Exactly. Well, and on top of that, as ice melts, it makes the ocean less salty. And that has a huge effect on ocean currents. So if you had an ice age and a sudden expansion in ocean ice, the ocean would become much saltier. And that would have a huge effect on ocean currents, which would affect, well, and the saltiness would affect fish and plant life in the ocean. It would, like, it would have broad effects on climate and ecology. I think it can affect how much carbon is being absorbed by the water, yeah. which feeds into this whole cycle. Yeah. I mean, the long and short of it is that the ecology of the earth is unfathomably complicated and chaotic. And so you can look up effects of global warming or cooling and there's, you know, you could list them for pages and pages and all of these things have vicious cycles in them, unsustainable kind of patterns, and it's all very chaotic. So it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen with any of these things, right? One thing I, in reading about this that I learned that was interesting is that all this talk of nuclear winter, right? We've never actually had a nuclear war of that scale, thank God. But the people who speculated about nuclear winter, it's all, I mean, it's all speculative, right? They also talked about the possibility of something like nuclear summer, which is the same idea, except if you're fine particles, instead of blocking out the sun on the way in, they block mostly just infrared radiation, then you get a greenhouse effect, which is something we all know all too much about. So all of this to say, 
it's all very, very sensitive to all sorts of details. And it's very difficult to say what would actually happen. But I think because we've had asteroids hit the Earth before and we've seen what happens there, and we know earlier today we were talking about a big volcanic eruption that happened in the 1800s that cooled the Earth for a couple of years. So that was a much smaller event, but still very significant. So you, you can easily imagine this having very long-lasting and terrible effects on the ecology of the planet. Well, and when he says cools the Earth, it was to the point that people noticed. People in the Northern Hemisphere called it the year without a summer. And it affected crop growth and it caused, I don't know about famines necessarily, but certainly shortages of food. I believe it did cause famines. And that was from one admittedly large, but a single volcano. One of our previous guests, uh, Colin, our environmentalism correspondent, mentioned in an earlier episode how it's sort of funny that Shar seems to believe that he has found what Colin called the Goldilocks window, the exact right amount of asteroid to drop on Earth in order to give it a nice long rest, mm -hmm. but without killing the Earth, without wiping out all life. But I think it's pretty clear from this discussion we've had that's impossible. There's no way he knows exactly what's going to happen when he drops this asteroid full of nuclear weapons oh. or half of the asteroid full of nuclear weapons or half of the asteroid with no nuclear weapons. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, if there's one thing you can easily take away from this movie is that Shar actually has no clue what's going to happen because when the asteroid splits in half, he's still excited about that half falling on Earth. So clearly he just wants to wreck things. The only thing I'll say in defense of Shar's position, not in defense of his choices, but in defense of the idea that you could do this and expect life not to be entirely wiped out, is that while, as we've established, the ecology and the systems under which our current forms of life are very dependent uh, is extremely sensitive and unstable, life as a whole is extremely robust. And so you could do all sorts of stuff to the earth, and I would be willing to bet that it would be almost impossible to wipe out every form of life. There'd still be tardigrades yeah. hanging around. A billion years later, you would have all sorts of stuff crawling around the surface of the earth. Totally fine. If that asteroid had not wiped out the dinosaurs, none of us would be sitting here making this podcast. And if Shar had succeeded, presumably in hundreds of millions or billions of years, some other group of creatures, maybe reptiles, maybe insects, will be making podcasts of their own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's important to remember that that's not in any way a defense, right? That's just, sure, he's not going to kill literally everything. It would be very difficult to actually destroy all life on the planet. He would need a much larger asteroid. <laughs> and if he could find one... yeah. We're talking about the effects of these asteroids when they hit Earth. We talked a little bit about the one that gets dropped at the very beginning of the movie on Lhasa. Is that where the capital lives at that point in time? Well, not by the time the asteroid hits, but um, previously, yes. Okay. The Federation found out about what was happening and they got out of there and left all the actual normal people to suffer the consequences. Right. Love that when governments do that. But yeah, so... They drop this asteroid on Tibet, and it seems, I mean, since they decide to drop another asteroid, that it didn't have the desired effect. Although Nina has pointed out in the past um, that we then see all these characters in the vicinity around Hong Kong, and a lot of them are wearing big coats. They're having trouble seeing the sun. Mm -hmm. um, so it does seem like there's been a local dust cloud effect in you know southern Asia. Right. Or, or even a more widespread effect, but not enough to make the planet 
uninhabitable for yeah. people. Enough to change things, certainly, but uh, not to the point of everyone dying or everyone being unable to continue living there. This is possibly related to the fact that Tibet is in the mountains of the in the Himalayas, and so the effect of the explosion was maybe like kind of contained. I was wondering if that might be the case. The parallel that I thought of, I do not have a source for this. This is a thing I remember from a class I took in college uh, and a visit to the Hiroshima Museum, but that Hiroshima had been chosen as a target for a nuclear bomb partially because of its terrain and geography. It's a broad, flat plain and then ringed by mountains. And so if you were, say, testing the effect of a weapon uh, on a city, it is sort of ideal for that. As horrible as that sounds, that was part of the thinking, was that it was an ideal test ground. The mountains would confine the explosion to the city, and the rest of the city is quite flat. It's horrible, but that sounds very correct. It does make me wonder why Shar would have targeted Lhasa, since it would probably have less of an effect than some other targets, but I imagine it's because it was Federation headquarters. Maybe one uh, generous interpretation is that he was targeting somewhere where there's people so that it's, you know, gets a lot of attention and gets people afraid, but he wants the explosion to remain contained to give people the chance to leave Earth. Because I guess his incentive, he what he wants to do is for everyone to be gone from Earth and everyone to live in space and move on to the next stage of human civilization. So maybe it's a terror tactic and he's just trying to get people to get off the planet, uh, but he wants it to initially be contained before he drops the second one. I'm not even sure about that, to be honest, because he sort of waffles back and forth between humans need to leave Earth and humans need to be punished for what they've done. Mm -hmm. And if the motivation is more on the punishment side, then he doesn't want to scare them and make them go to space. He wants to kill them. Man, Char sucks. <laughs> there is something to what you're saying, Yiraj. And part of that is that Char's stated motivations are all over the map in this right. movie. And so it's hard to know. But if that is what he was hoping would happen, then I think he has um, vastly misjudged the capability of people to actually leave Earth. Mm -hmm. Because over and over again in this movie, we cut to the people on Earth desperate to leave, right. desperate to get away from this falling asteroid. But the shuttles aren't running. The shuttle company has ditched. All of the Federation officials are gone. Right. Like. I mean, it's the, the same tone deafness that we hear every time there's a major disaster, you know, man-made, political, or ecological. It's like, oh, well, if it's so bad there, why don't they just leave? Yeah. Woof. Any other science things you <laughs> wanted to talk about? <laughs> uh, yes, actually. We've talked about the nuclear pulse engines. Nuclear weapons are actually a huge presence in this movie, much more so than in any previous Gundam. And we actually see some big nuclear explosions in space. I know this isn't your specialty, but what would actually happen if you detonated a nuclear bomb in space? Would it look like a giant fireball? This is kind of interesting because when you're studying physics, you rarely actually talk about real things that really happen because physicists study these idealized versions of things, right? I took one class one time where we talked about what happens when an explosion takes place. And as physicists, usually when you think about explosions, you have to think about them in an environment where there's some kind of fluid, uh, either like a gas like air or it's underwater. 
Because really the most important part of an explosion, at least what you think about as our experience of what explosions are, is like this feeling of a physical blast, right? And the, the blast is set by the speed at which air is being pushed out from the explosion, right? And so one thing that happens that's really interesting when you have explosions in the air or in water is these things called shock waves, which are like a very particular physical phenomenon. And so that's, that's cool and all. Um, obviously explosions aren't, well, they are cool, but they're not cool when... <laughs> Weapons aren't good. Don't work for the DOD. Um, but uh, explosions in space are kind of a weird thing to think about because you don't actually have a medium through which like momentum is going to be like transferred because there's no stuff to like push out of the way. But as we know from the existence of nuclear pulse engines, there is a way for the momentum to get somewhere, right? You, the explosion happens. All that momentum and energy is there. It has to go somewhere. And so essentially all that happens is you have some particles from the actual explosion itself. So you're probably you're like alpha, beta, gamma radiation, all of that stuff. So you've got the nuclear material, whatever it is that, that is exploding, plus whatever yeah, housing, casing, casing whatever, whatever yeah. that gets like reduced. And then it probably gets reduced to like very fine stuff, maybe individual atoms. So that stuff will probably get ejected, but that's not much material, right? Compared to, you know, all of the air in like the sky above a city or something right so what happens right when you have an explosion in the air is that all this radiation gets quickly converted to heat and so it heats up the air and so like it expands it right and so what we know from like explosions of nuclear bombs the tragic ones that have taken place is that the thing that actually starts destroying everything is the these insane fires that they cause right everything just like gets really really hot and the blast wave is significant but it's not actually what does the most damage but like in space, I guess you would just get a crazy amount of radiation. And so when you're building, for example, one of these pulse engines, right, you'd want to have some kind of plate that can absorb as much of this radiation as possible and just like it gets converted to momentum. But it's very unlike the way we would experience an explosion. There's no sound. There's no shock wave. There's just radiation and tiny particles. And I guess you would maybe feel them as some kind of like a blast, but I can't imagine it feels anything like what an explosion on Earth feels. But visually, the like big orb of light, mm -hmm. is that what we would expect from a nuke going off in space? So that's one thing that's interesting too. And this is something I definitely don't think about often enough about what things look like in space is when I shine a light or like I explode something on Earth, right? I see light coming from not just that source, but also it like gets reflected off a bunch of stuff that's in the air. And so that's why, for example, if you're in a dusty room and there's like a beam of light coming from outside, you can really see that beam of light, right? And so in a similar way, when you're in space, if there's just like no stuff floating around, which like might be not true in the case of a battle, there's probably lots of debris and like little dust and stuff like that from the battle, but assuming there isn't, you would just see light from like this source. So you'd kind of just see like a point of really bright light. Hmm. So you probably wouldn't get a big fireball or a big orb of stuff because there just isn't anything there to burn. There isn't anything there to reflect the light. Except for whatever small amount of material actually came from the explosive itself. Yeah, it'd probably just like look like a really bright single light source. If you have some stuff around it, some smoke, some stuff like that, that would get lit up. And probably something in the metal of housing of the warhead would like get converted to gas since so you might have a small like yeah. burning gas cloud yeah briefly maybe you'd have yeah some kind of like puff of of light at first or something yeah but it would be relatively small intensely bright yeah again far from an expert on this but that's i would say my guess as to what it would look like someone should i feel like blowing up a nuke in space is harmless enough someone should do it and take a picture and tell us what i mean okay in a very very silly way 
that's what stars are, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're just very big nuclear explosions in space. Um, but I guess there you have a ton of gas. So that's why they form this like orb. It's like a lot of gas that's collected in one place. The other thing that we were talking about in relation to these explosions uh, is that they're happening quite near a whole lot of human people. And the radiation exposure would be really high. Like there's that one scene where Shar has a nuke explode just in front of him and he kind of gets pushed back and there's bright light on his face in one shot. And my first thought was like, wow, he's his skin's going to peel off right after this. right? <laughs> if anyone's seen the movie Chernobyl, like movie, the TV show Chernobyl, you're just being like exposed to that initial blast of gamma radiation will just like totally destroy all of your tissues. Um, but he seems fine. But then again, there's a pretty consistent explanation for this, which is that in space, you have tons of radiation all the time from the sun, from other stars. And so any spaceship that has people in it needs to have radiation shielding to begin with. And these, since these are war spaceships, they probably have extra radiation shielding. So I guess it makes sense that they probably already prepared for that. And probably the, um, the spacesuits that they wear, not the mobile suits, but the little normal suits, piloting suits, those are probably also at least somewhat radiation shielded. Yeah. The one thing that's interesting about that, though, is if you're shielding against like gamma radiation, at the end of the day, what you want is just to have a lot of stuff in the way so that those particles get kind of absorbed, right? And so you just want some like really heavy metal to absorb the particles. And so the baseline radiation out in space is not that high. So you can just have some like thick, you know, metal plates and that should be enough. But people who like work in like nuclear reactors and things um, know that at those kinds of places, you have to build these thick concrete walls with like, usually you'll also use things like lead because that's a really heavy, dense metal with lots of atoms that are going to block radiation in it. And in a very simple sense, the weight is what you need. There's really no way to make a light, good radiation shield because the whole point is to just have a lot of atoms in the way. And so if these things are so well radiation shielded that you can just have a nuke go off next to you and you're fine, I guess these are pretty small, like tactical nukes that they're using, first of all. But also, I guess these mobile suits have to be tremendously heavy. They are canonically not as heavy as you would expect. Oh, really? I mean, you can easily imagine, you know, maybe with like Minovsky particles or something, you can reflect radiation somehow. Like maybe yeah, there's sure. some active form of shielding. Minovsky particles solve every problem. They solve every problem. We have talked about all of the big important things. So I have a couple of small things to yeah. pick your brain about. Feel free. At one point in the movie, Cameron Bloom of the Audit Bureau deploys a little handheld device, which he seems to be using to confirm whether or not the gold that is being used both as a payment for access and as a bribe for the Federation officials is in fact actually gold. Yeah. Do you have any idea what this device he's using is actually doing? Yeah. So one thing people who do astronomy use all the time to figure out uh, what stuff is made of in space is called spectroscopy. The basic idea of spectroscopy is that if I, and we experience this all the time, when I shine a light on a material, it's going to reflect certain colors of that light. Uh, And this is somehow due to quantum mechanics. There's like this weird things where certain light is going to interact with the atoms in your material and other light is not going to. And so when you actually look at the spectrum of all the colors that are being emitted by a material, you can tell exactly what the electronic structure of that material is. And so because people have for a long time in detail studied the spectra of all of the fundamental elements, you can tell me, oh, I saw this light that was reflected off this like asteroid or something. And I can look at the spectrum of that and say, oh, here I see signatures of iron and gold or whatever, right? So my 
guess is that he's doing some kind of spectroscopy. And nowadays, that's something we do. We do do spectroscopy on materials to figure out what they're made of. But you would have to, you know, cut out a little piece of that gold, take it to a lab, put it into some kind of spectrometer, and like, you know, do all sorts of stuff to it. But this is the future. He probably has a device that can just like, and just measures the spectra. And it tells him there's like above some certain percentage of gold or something. Yeah, any of these measurements nowadays takes pretty big devices. And it has to be a very controlled environment. Because obviously, I mean, if you try to do this just like on the, some desk table somewhere, you're going to pick up all the stuff that's in the air. You're going to pick up dust. You're going to pick up all sorts of things. But I think that's a mechanism that I could easily imagine. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like it really couldn't be anything else unless you're using some like unique properties of gold itself, like the crystalline structure of it or something like that. But I, I don't know enough about gold to really speak to it. But some materials have a very unique like crystal structure. And so if you mm-hmm. shine like x-rays on it, you can see what the structure of the crystal is. And I can tell you like, oh, this is organized in such and such pattern. But I guess usually that's to differentiate different crystal structures of the same material. So I feel like it's probably spectroscopy what's going on. Well, then I guess in the universal century, technology has advanced in at least two ways. They have developed mobile suits and they have miniaturized their spectroscopy machines. Yeah, proud of them. <laughs> also, they have fusion pulse engines, which pretty I think exciting. We should try to figure out. Uh, we need better space travel. And they have helium mining operations out by Jupiter. You know, mm. they've they've done all of the things necessary to support a mobile suit based economy. <laughs> <laughs> right, but the end goal is just having functional mobile suits. Mobile suits and briefcases full of gold. That is what it has always been about. Um, well, mobile suits, briefcases full of gold, and giant, really very realistic inflatable dummies. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about this one, too. Yeah, again, those were something where when I saw them, my initial reaction was like, oh, this is probably not right. But then when I thought about it, I think it actually it's actually totally fine, and you can totally do that. When you inflate a device, right, whether it's the tires on a bicycle or whether it's, I don't know, a helium balloon, you're just putting excess pressure inside you want it to be more pressure than what's outside, right? And so then that leads to some strain on the material, right? Whether it's rubber or some kind of whatever stretchable thing, or whether it's like a bubble underwater, right? It's it's all the same idea. And there's like a balance of forces between the pressure excess inside of the material and the tension of whatever the surface is. And so all you need to like inflate a balloon in space is to get some gas into a stretchy material. And since the pressure outside is zero, really any amount of gas will inflate something to a certain degree. There's no pressure from outside. The only thing preventing that gas from expanding out forever is whatever this stretchy material is made of. So it's actually not super hard if, you know, you remember uh, high school chemistry and the ideal gas law, uh, you can kind of figure out, okay, given a certain amount of gas, I can get this much pressure. And then you can figure out, okay, rubber stretched out this much will lead to a certain amount of pressure inwards. And so they balance out. And so then the only question is, okay, but how are you getting that oxygen or that gas into these dummy balloons? And the answer is, oh, well, gases tend to be very compressible. A long distance cyclist will know you can buy like tiny little canisters that have carbon dioxide in them. So if your tires need to be refilled, you can kind of just open this little canister and it's like the size of your thumb and it'll refill your whole tire. And so it's very possible that it's the same thing. They might have tiny canisters in them of like liquid nitrogen or liquid oxygen or something. So it's really, really highly compressed. And then they just, the canister opens and then all the gases expand and it's, you know, they put in the right amount so that it balances out with the stretchiness of this material to make the size dummy that they want. And so that's actually, doesn't seem that ridiculous. You just need to compress gases into little canisters, send them out into space and, you know, open the canister at the right time. 
Let's finish this off with some good old fashioned nitpicking. Mm -hmm. You had a problem with Shar's cape. Oh yeah, the cape. <laughs> yeah, I think this was the most interesting nitpick I had other than, I don't know, wind in space and sound in space, which are all totally acceptable as far as I'm concerned. Um, you have one scene where Shar is giving his very Hitlerian speech to the large army that he has. And it's quickly established that this is in an environment where there's no gravity, right? And um, he's speaking and these soldiers are standing upright, but also some of them are standing sideways. And it's, which is a really cool scene. It's kind of fun how they make use of the fact that there's no gravity in this scene. Uh, as Nina pointed out, this movie actually does a really good job of reminding you all the time that zero gravity life means that things don't need to be upright. And that's pretty cool. So this is all really well and good and it's well established. But then he turns away and he walks away and you see that his cape is hanging down like it would on Earth. And that's just inconsistent. It would at least float up because of the air in the room and just get all tangled up in his face or something. <laughs> or at least be floating behind him like some kind of, a, you know, wings or something like that. We see him descend a staircase right after he's given this speech. Mm -hmm. So you would expect the cape to like drift up with the edge of the cape remaining in place mm -hmm. as he went down the stairs. But instead it behaves just like a any cape on earth would. Exactly. It would at least be like billowing all over the place. Really capes in space seems like a really bad idea, but he seems to insist on it. Well, so I can tell you that his cape is actually made of uh, very, very small computer chips, the size of metal, <laughs> metal particles. Um, and it's been interlaced with psychoframe, which as you know, is controlled by his mind. Right. And so the cape is merely obeying his commands. That's a really cool show of his telekinetic powers and also how petty he is about the way he uses them. <laughs> but yeah, one of you mentioned uh, that the walking around in the spaceship is taken care of by the fact that their boots probably have magnets in them. And so one way you could deal with this is by putting magnets in the cape, but then it would just get stuck on all sorts of random <laughs> It things. would just stick to everything. <laughs> Clearly, the biggest artistic failure in this movie is that there is no scene of Char's cape getting stuck to something because right. of all the magnets in it. <laughs> exactly. Um, but otherwise, honestly, a lot less nitpicking than I expected. Yeah, I, um, I noticed that in this movie, they make a point of having the mobile suits engines fire at the same time that they're shooting their guns. So they're actually like balancing the momentum. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't even see that. It's such a small detail. That's very you know. good. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed the movie so much. We had a great time talking about it with you. Thank you for coming back on the show. Yeah, and thanks for having me. As always, very educational. Happy to hear it. And <laughs> thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. And now Tom's research on mobile suit names in Char's counterattack. Longtime listeners know that I love to talk about the names of things, especially the names of mobile suits. Sometimes we'll encounter a name with a fairly obvious or well-known origin, like the Palace Athena, but more often than not we're out there chasing down tantalizing hints or trying to verify, or disprove, rumors that have been floating around in the fandom for decades. These puzzles always leave us with questions. Is the name The O a reference to long-standing esoteric notions about the relationship between spheres and divinity? Was Gabflay a corruption of Gadfly, the change motivated by the dictates of trademark law? Is that why the Elmeth, which shares its name with luxury brand Hermes, 
has to be sold under the name Newtype's Mobile Armor instead of its proper one. Does Bolinoke Saman really come from the name of a children's sing-along tune borrowed from the United States after an international scouting jamboree? We talked about the name pronunciations in Char's Counterattack at the beginning of Season 4, but I want to revisit some of them now for a brief discussion of the names as artifacts. Where do we think they came from, and what, if anything, do we think they mean? First up, the main Neozeon grunt suit, the Gira Doga. Like most of the suits I'll be talking about today, this one is a mixture of stuff we know and educated guesses to fill in the gaps. The Doga part is the trickier half. It's used twice in the movie, for the Gira and Yacht Dogas, and in Beltorchka's children there is a Psycho Doga. There is also a wholly different Psycho Doga from the Char's counterattack version of mobile suit variations. That one is a mobile armor, and a precursor to the Alpha Ajiru. All of this suggests Doga is a generic term, and the first word distinguishes specialized versions. The Yacht Doga is the elite hunter type. The Psycho Doga is specialized for new types, and the Gira Doga is the standard version. The design inspiration for the Gira Doga is quite straightforward. The designer, Izubuchi Yutaka, often called Buchi, was told to design an MS based on the German infantry from World War II, and the image that resulted was basically a Zaku wearing a German-style helmet and an infantry soldier's backpack. Its armament, from its beam machine gun to its Sturmfaust rockets, are all closely modeled on real weapons. We might think that the name Giradoga also comes from German, especially considering its pointy brother the Yachtdoga, and it's possible that is the case. Looking at early designs from before mecha designer Nagano Mamoru left the project, we can see a proposed mobile suit dated December 86 and named Killadoga written K-I-L-L-A-H, and rendered as Kiradoga, with a short O sound in the katakana. Then, in 87, probably January, Nagano designed another, called the Psycho Dora. This shift from Doga to Dora, eventually landing on Doga, suggests to me that they were playing around with different syllables, trying to get something that sounded good, rather than trying to incorporate any particular word. That said, while the Killa or Kiradoga looks almost nothing like the Giradoga of the movie, the similarity of the name leads me to believe that that name, Giradoga, was derived from Kiradoga. It wouldn't be the first time a good mobile suit name got detached from one MS and attached to a different design. Remember the Methus. Actually, let's all remember the Methus. I really came around on that suit. We need more Methus content. Anyway, if we assume that the Gira in Gira Doga is derived from the Killa in Killa Doga, it then seems likely that the Killa part is derived from the German word Killa which is spelled like and borrowed from the English killer, but sounds more like the killer that was written on the design sheet. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, but you get the idea. Our German language consultant Luna was able to verify that the word was in use at least as early as 1972, making a German derivation for Killa to Kira and then to Gira at least plausible. If true, this would make for a neat pairing with the Yacht in Yacht Doga. Hunter, 
and Killer together. Let us move on now to Quest's final craft, the Alpha Ajiru. Here we have the benefit of an explanation from mecha designer Izabuchi himself. According to Izabuchi, he designed the Alpha without having been asked to do so, since he felt like it would be appropriate to have a mobile armor in the climax of the movie. The original plan was to keep Quest in the Yacht Doga the whole time, but Tomino decided to incorporate the Alpha after seeing it. Izabuchi went on to explain the meaning of the name. Alpha, of course, comes from the Greek letter, and in this context it indicates that this is Quest's first Ajiru. But what's an Ajiru? Per Izabuchi's comments, the Ajiru in Alpha Ajiru comes from the Japanese word Ajiru, a loan word cognate with the English word asylum, meaning a place of refuge. Interestingly, at least according to the dictionaries that I consulted, the Japanese Ajiru is derived from the German version of the word, which is something like Asul. It's yet another German-derived name for Neo-Zeon. I note in passing that all of these asylum-type words are ultimately derived from a Greek word that was then absorbed into Latin, as so often happens. When we use the word asylum now, at least in English, we tend to think of it kind of broadly, in terms of a safe and protected place. But more historically and more precisely, asylum refers to sanctified territory outside the ambit of the state's secular authority. Whatever crimes you may have committed in the secular world, if you can make it to an asylum or an ajiru, you will be spared arrest, prosecution, and punishment. In the Japanese historical context, ajiru tends to describe regions outside the control of the central government, especially during the medieval period, when the imperial, bakufu, and local authorities, whether religious or secular, all grappled with each other for influence. It is appropriate that Quest, having spent the first part of the movie running away from her father, who is himself a stand-in for the government, then winds up in the Alpha Ajiru after finally getting free of him. Doubly so, because it is while killing him that her Yacht Doga is damaged. Thus, her act of patricide becomes both the reason why she must transfer to a new machine and the crime that she has committed, for which she seeks asylum. And in a sense, despite her ultimate end, it does protect her. Her death is never framed as a punishment for the crimes she has committed. It is merely a tragedy, the kind that happens all too often in war. Finally, let's talk about everyone's favorite giant red friend, the Sazabi. There is a theory you'll see online about the Sazabi that the Zabi part refers to the Zabi family of First Gundam, and that the Sa part has something to do with Shar killing them. That supposedly, Sazabi means something like Zabi killer in Japanese. But folks, I don't think there's any basis for this. I've never seen a source for the claim. I've never seen anything in Japanese that would explain this alleged translation. The Japanese-speaking Gundam fans I've asked about it were totally baffled, and I have never seen the claim made on the Japanese side of the internet. And the Zabi at the end of Sazabi isn't even spelled the same way as the Zabi in Zabi family. So much for that. 
Like the Gira Doga, we can trace the evolution of this mobile suit's name over the course of the movie's production. Early design sheets by Nagano show an intimidating mobile suit labeled Nightingale. It's not spelled the way you think it is. His version of the Nightingale didn't stick around, but the name did. In the Beltorchka's children version of this story, Shar pilots a mobile armor called the Nightingale instead of the Sazabi. After Nagano left the project, Shar's mobile suit was redesigned by Izubuchi, and it took on the familiar, and as far as I'm concerned, amazing, Sazabi design. But at this point, it bore a different name, Za-Naku, possibly meant to be the Nak. The production would abandon Za-Naku due to a trademark conflict with the similarly named 1986 Famicom vertical-scrolling shooter Zanaku, localized in English as Zanak. It was at that point they adopted Sazabi. Ironically, and as Izabuchi has pointed out in several different interviews I've read, Sazabi also had trademark conflicts, specifically with the Japanese luxury lifestyle brand Sazabi League, not spelled the way you think it is, and with internationally renowned auction house Sotheby's, both of which use the name Sazabi in Japanese. Thanks to tireless translator Zionic Scanlations, we know that the Sazabi-Sotheby's connection was not a coincidence. At least according to one of those quasi-official sourcebooks published by Animedia, the name Sazabi was taken directly from the auction house, which happened to be all the rage for wealthy Japanese people, riding high on the asset bubble of the late 80s and spending their yen on imported luxury goods. So that's the reference. But the meaning of this reference is harder to pin down. Perhaps it is part of Char's whole luxury aesthetic. The fancy dressing gowns, the immaculate chartreuse yuppie-style suit, the expensive liquor, the limousine, the gated mansion, the opulently decorated wardroom on his flagship. Perhaps Tomino and company viewed him as the kind of person who would patronize Sotheby's. This may even have a kind of tenuous connection to the scene where Xeon buys Axis from the Federation. During the late 1980s, the value of Japanese assets surged, and Japanese buyers were flush with cash. This fed a local market for luxury goods, but internationally and on a larger scale, it saw Japanese corporations go from making respectable profits to having more money than they knew how to spend. Some of them went on a buying spree. Between 1985 and 1990, Japanese corporations bought something like $53 billion worth of real estate in the United States. Famously, in 1989, just a year after Shara's counterattack, Mitsubishi bought Rockefeller Center in New York. Since season one, we have argued that Xeon serves as a stand-in, principally, for Japan. Perhaps the Xeon purchase of Axis from the crumbling Federation was inspired by Japanese corporations buying land from the United States, as the smaller nation's economy seemed to briefly overtake the American juggernaut. Perhaps. But let's go back to the interstitial name, Zanaku. Unlike the original name, Nightingale, which was said to have been adopted because the bird was associated with death, or the final name, Sotheby's, I have never seen an explanation for where Zanaku came from. It's possible, but in my view kind of unlikely, that they got the name from that video game, Zanak. 
The timing is right, but I couldn't find any connection between the two projects, except that they both involve flying and shooting in space. Moreover, Zanaku for the game is written as one word, but Zanaku for the mobile suit is written with an interpunct or nakaten, a dot which is used to separate the words in foreign phrases. We have encountered these before, actually. One was used in The O from Zeta Gundam. Another more likely possibility is the American rock band The Knack, rendered in Japanese as Zanaku, complete with Nakaten and exactly identical to the name of the mobile suit. This one would be even more plausible if the switch from Nightingale to Zanaku happened before Nagano Mamoru left the project. A musician himself, Nagano is known for his love of music from around the world, including American rock music. His work is replete with references to songs, bands, and musicians. I think I've mentioned this before back when I theorized that the turtle tattoo on Yazan's chest was a reference to Sting's album The Dream of the Blue Turtles, and Nagano's work on Five Star Stories practically overflows with references of this kind. Given the rumors that swirl within the movie about Shar's relationships with young women like Kwes, Za Naku might have been chosen as an oblique reference to The Knack's 1979 mega-hit My Sharona, which, if you have somehow never heard it, is all about the older singer's interest in a woman who is too young for him. The lyrics are a bit risque for this podcast, but the gist of it is that the singer is always interested in the younger kind, as he puts it. In the US, My Sharona spent six weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. It was a smash hit in Japan, too, reaching number 26 on the Oricon singles chart. The Knack toured Japan the following year, playing 10 shows in venues from Hokkaido to Okinawa. The song was popular enough in the late 80s that, in 89, the hit rock bands Unicorn and Jun Skywalkers performed a joint cover of My Sharona on NHK's special Christmas program. With a profile that high for both the song and the band, it seems more likely than not that whoever suggested the name did so fully aware of the identically named band. But before I bring this research piece to a close, I'm not going to let you get away without one more obscure connection to the German language. Long after Char's counterattack wrapped, Nagano would revisit his design for the Nightingale. Published in January 2007 in New Type magazine, this version of the Nightingale was treated as a new machine. It was given a new backstory and a new name, in Japanese, Nahatogaru, rendered in English as Nahatgal, and it is derived from Nachtigall, the word for Nightingale, in German. And now, Nina's research on story structures like Kisho Tenketsu and Joha Kyu that offer alternatives to the schema that most of us learned in school. In school, many of us are taught both story elements, also called story grammar, things like setting, theme, plot, and story structures like Aristotelian poetics, three- or five-act structure, the hero's journey, or Freytag's pyramid. 
The theory is that knowing these things, the building blocks of a story and how they fit together, helps with reading comprehension. It helps us understand the internal logic of a work. The problem is in the narrowness of this view. I can't speak to education outside of the U.S., but most of my primary and secondary school education was very Eurocentric. When did I learn about story structures from indigenous American cultures, or Africa, or Asia? I didn't. <laughs> Even when stories from other cultures did come up, the schema, the way of looking at stories, the template for how to make sense of what we were reading, just was not taught in the same systematic and consistent way over my entire time as a student. One of my sources, a paper on narrative game design, or what they call interactive digital narratives, questions the, quote, supposed ubiquity of these European structures, their assumed universality, and our largely unthinking reliance on them while there are so many other forms a story can take. As much as I enjoyed Char's counterattack, there were things about the storytelling that felt unsatisfying or lacking to me. Uh, and because of who and how I am, I think it's important to question how much of my reaction is personal taste, how much of it is problems in the execution of this work, and how much of it is maybe that I'm not looking at the story from quite the right perspective. If I picked up a different template, a different schema for looking at this narrative, would I feel differently about it? In 1983, Matsuyama Utako, a reading teacher who specialized in teaching English and Japanese bilingual students, wrote a short paper that demonstrates how, quote, story grammar appropriate for stories written in the Western tradition may not match stories written in other cultures. She poses the question of whether applying schemata from a culture different than the story's origin culture causes comprehension problems. In a small experiment, Western story grammar models were applied to 20 Japanese folktales, chosen randomly from a collection of about 150. One of the story grammar models consisted of setting, which included characters, location, and time, theme, which includes events and a goal, plot, which consists of episodes, each of which has a sub-goal, an attempt, and an outcome, and a resolution. This model assumes that the story contains a significant goal, and they found that 16 of the 20 folktales, or 80%, had no goal structure for the main character. An alternate model has two options for plot episodes, a simple action and reaction structure, or a complex goal-attempt-outcome structure, which then accommodated all of these stories. Yet there were additional wrinkles. Five of the stories, or 25%, combined episodes without and episodes with a goal structure, often to contrast a good character and a bad. For example, a story might have an honest, kind person happen upon an animal in trouble, or a statue with a kami in it, and after they help it, good things start happening to them. No goal involved. The bad character sees this good fortune and tries to get the same good fortune for themselves with decidedly unfortunate results. 
goal-oriented. <laughs> Matsuyama credits the influence of Buddhism in Japanese culture, an emphasis on the denial of or lack of desire, discouraging aggressively goal-oriented behavior. Another example, this one a story with no goal structure at all, is Urashima Taro. In it, a young fisherman rescues a large turtle from a group of children. The turtle then takes him to the sea palace, where he is entertained by the queen for a few days. She sends him home with a souvenir, a beautiful box. But when he surfaces on that same beach, everything has changed. He then opens the box, and the smoke that emerges from it turns him into an old man. This is a story with no goal, no moral. As Matsuyama points out, judged by Western story grammar models, this is not a well-structured story. We would expect it to be hard to understand. But it's a very well-known folktale that poses no comprehension problems for the Japanese children who grow up with it. I know we have a fair few listeners who have played Final Fantasy XIV, the multiplayer online RPG, and there is a quite overt reference to this story in one of the dungeons. Similar to that comprehension issue, a lack of familiarity with a relevant narrative structure can affect our understanding and enjoyment of a work. In an article for Book Riot, Patricia Tang notes common complaints about many of the movies and books she really enjoys. That people don't like the open endings or that nothing really happens. And she discusses how the schema we use when we read a book or watch a movie affect our expectations about the progression of the story and ultimately our enjoyment and evaluation of the piece as a whole. In terms of narrative structure, several of the sources for this piece outline different structures from all over the world, but I'm going to focus on those most closely associated with Japan. Different sources I consulted also highlight different details and nuances so some of these points may not always be applicable, but even those differences are interesting. And as author Kim Yoon-mi points out in her blog post about worldwide story structures, also linked in the show notes, even the research into this topic has a distinctly Eurocentric bent. Academic sources are few and far between. With those caveats out of the way, what is Kisho Tenketsu? Also called Kisho Tengo, it's a four-act structure consisting of introduction, development, a twist or change, and conclusion. This structure originated in Chinese four-line poetry and is used in Chinese and Korean narratives as well, though of course with different names. One of my sources highlights some differences in how the structure is used across different cultures, but I will be focusing on Japan. Part of the interest in Kisho Tenketsu among writers from other cultures is that it's touted as a story structure not dependent on or driven by conflict, a stark contrast to a lot of Western writing advice that treats conflict as central to creating an engaging story. Kim writes that Kisho Tenketsu is a fundamentally introspective form, based in self-realization, self-actualization, and self-development. Instead of conflict leading to a climax, the story is mostly set up, then a major twist, change, or reveal. The first section, key or introduction, establishes the setting, characters, and other relevant background information. 
The second section, Shoal or Development, expands on the world and characters, fleshing them out and adding detail, but without introducing any major changes. The third section, Ten or Twist, is the height of the audience's emotional engagement, an unexpected development that recontextualizes all the previous story events. This unexpected development doesn't have to be transformative or earth-shattering. It can be funny or it can just be surprising, as long as it constitutes a, quote, change or catalyst in the story that, though often unrelated to the elements from the first two acts, impacts them in some fashion and leads the story to its conclusion. The fourth section, ketsu, or conclusion, reveals the result or aftermath of the twist. However, very little time is spent on this in proportion to time spent on the other sections. As one source pointed out, your characters don't have to show growth, and sometimes barely any action has happened. Another noted that the ketsu section draws a connection from the twist back to the beginning of the story, and may even introduce new elements. This structure crops up frequently in urban legends and horror stories and seems less difficult for unfamiliar readers and watchers to enjoy in those contexts. Uh, an example from a Tofugu article is The Licked Hand, which is a very short horror story I remember hearing as a kid and which some of you may be familiar with. Do you remember this one? I do not. <laughs> they put the story into the Kisho Tenketsu format. So, key. A young girl is home alone with only her pet dog for comfort and company. Shoal, she hears on the news of an escaped convict and becomes frightened. She is too scared to go to sleep and lets her hand hang out of her bed and her dog licks her hand and it comforts her. Twist, she wakes up in the morning and discovers that her dog is dead and has been dead all night. Ketsu, she finds the words... Humans can lick too, written in blood. Now I remember this story, and I <laughs> wish I didn't. <laughs> in the Japanese context for Kisho Tenketsu, emphasis is on the characters and some internal problem, usually just one. The setup demonstrates how that problem negatively affects their everyday life. Then, quote, they put in something that you didn't expect to happen, or a revelation about the past that makes everything before change and reveals the core of the problem. The conclusion is usually not a resolution. The problem is not completely solved or other problems persist. And the ending likely hints at the continuing story or even hints at a backslide, the loss of whatever positive progress might have been made. It doesn't feel like the sort of conclusion or denouement we're used to from a story that follows Freytag's structure because it isn't. It's circular. It's cyclical. Another beginning. Once more, Buddhism is cited as an influence. The idea that there are no real endings in the universe and no real resolution ever. Another story structure from Japan is Jō-ha-kyū, or roughly, beginning, break, rapid. It's not, strictly speaking, a story structure, but rather a, quote, concept of modulation and movement, which is applied to many traditional arts like tea ceremony, martial arts, poetry, and kabuki and no theater. It describes what is seen as a natural cyclical rhythm, 
wherein something begins slowly, builds speed, and ends swiftly and decisively before beginning the cycle over again. There is little to no falling action or conclusion, and while there may be conflict in the story, it isn't the main driver. Conflict is not the point. Rather, the action and what the action tells us about the characters and the setting, that's the point. As in Kisho Tenketsu, quote, a new conflict might arise at the end of the structure which never gets resolved or revisited within the story. At first, I found myself wondering about shonen stories as a counterpoint. To me, many shonen stories seem very goal-oriented. Martial arts stories like History's Mightiest Disciple Kenichi, or stories structured around competition like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh. But is that my American perspective superimposing itself? Of course, cultures and their effects on each other aren't unidirectional, and I'm sure European storytelling has affected Japanese fiction. But with these new schemata, new ways of looking at the parts and structure of stories, I see the same stories differently. The emphasis changes from the goal and progress towards it to the process and the relationships along the way. As I recall it, actually, most of the beginning part of History's Mightiest Disciple Kenichi, to go to one of the examples you used, is about all of the martial arts masters trying to teach Kenichi not to be goal-oriented. I don't know about the rest of you, but even just in those descriptions of Kisho Tenketsu and Johaku, I found myself recontextualizing <laughs> Char's counterattack and looking at the film a bit differently. Which leads me to the conclusion that part of my reaction to Char's counterattack, my frustration that Char's motivations and goals weren't clearer or more cohesive, was because I went in thinking this would be a story about opposing forces and their goals, when maybe it's not really about that at all. I automatically and pretty unthinkingly question what the, the point or message of a work is. What was the creator trying to say? But what if there isn't a purpose in that sense? What if the point, not to be flippant about it, is vibes? <laughs> to feel certain things or think about certain things without a clear directive or moral or message. And checking my own biases, that a work that doesn't articulate a clear purpose or message isn't necessarily flawed because of that. This gets at a deeper issue, talked about extensively in one of the articles I read for this, Francisco Vaz de Silva's Narrative Cultures in the Mirror, that, quote, folklorists and anthropologists turn narratives brimming with conceptual challenges into reflections of their own common sense, finding in alien settings the reiteration of things already known. De Silva calls this looking-glass scholarship, a reference to Through the Looking Glass and What Alice Found There by Lewis Carroll. Quote, As Alice stands in front of her drawing room mirror, she speculates that the image in the mirror is a glimpse of an alien place she calls Looking Glass House, where there's the room you can see through the glass that's just the same as our drawing room, only the things go the other way. There, the books are something like our books, only the words go the wrong way. He expands on this explanation by discussing Claude Lévi-Strauss's article, Goodbye to the Cross Cousin, an analysis of the tale of Genji that, quote, 
resonates with a leitmotif of Western thought rather than with anything Japanese, reading the story according to a preset scheme and so missing crucial aspects of the text. I have to make a short but fascinating detour. I had not realized prior to reading this article how many similarities there are between characters Shar and Genji. <laughs> the Shining Prince and the Red Comet. Indeed. Uh, his pursuit of a string of symbolically connected feminine substitutes that ultimately leads back to his mother. His charm and popularity. And his decline after a period of supreme glory. Citing Morris and Pekarik, De Silva notes about Genji's story that, quote, the search for a yukari, literally affinity, link, or substitutive figure is bleakly unproductive, and systematic misunderstandings prompt a general sense of isolation and desolation. When Genji is sent into exile, he puts an effigy, a likeness of himself, laden with his sins in a boat and sets it adrift. I'm thinking of Shikwatro adrift in space at the end of Zeta. You mean while the Hyakushiki that represents his body drifts along completely destroyed, like an effigy, as he lets one identity burn and starts to craft another? Dot dot dot. Later, one of the women in the chain of simulacra and replacements of the tale throws herself into a river. She becomes a ritual, disposable scapegoat. It's a purificatory image. So is Chen, or our Chen and Quest, as the last in a long line of replacements, a kind of human sacrifice? A symbolic human form cast into the sea of space, bearing humanity's sins to cleanse and save them all? It is after Chen dies that the other Federation fleets come to the aid of Londo Bell that the rest of humanity wakes up to the necessity of saving the Earth? Indeed. Returning to the thorny problem of analyzing media from cultures not our own, while we want to avoid looking-glass scholarship, we also want to avoid a counter-impulse toward exoticization, valuing only what seems strange to us and treating other cultures and times as completely alien and unintelligible. Alice goes through the mirror and, quote, resolutely turns away from the image of her drawing room, which was quite common and uninteresting, whereas all the rest behind the mirror was as different as possible. How to reconcile these two extremes? To paraphrase De Silva, if you only read from your own script, you learn nothing. But at the same time, quote, fascinating narratives from other times and places cry out for meaningful exchange. We have to make space for deeper strains of thought involving ambiguity and accommodating paradox. While Tom and I are not engaging in anthropology or folkloristics per se, we are analyzing a cultural product and cannot help but view it through the lens of our own lives. We are no more aware of our own culture than we are of the air we breathe, which is to say, sometimes. <laughs> But that doesn't stop it from coloring our analysis and our interpretations. While we try to come to Gundam without preconceptions, certain things are so ingrained and feel so natural from our admittedly limited perspective uh, that we forget to look for other angles. So I wrote this piece not to say that using 
Western schemata to analyze Shar's counterattack is necessarily wrong. That's not a knowable fact. <laughs> uh, but to highlight some of the limitations of our perspective, that our base assumptions can be wrong or even just irrelevant, that even things that don't stand out to us as different can have very different meanings to the creators or to a Japanese audience than they do to Tom and I. All we can do is keep learning about different perspectives, different analytical frameworks, and see how that changes and enriches the experience of watching Gundam. This is, I'm not going to say our final talk back on CCA, because who knows, maybe we'll revisit it later, but it is our final talk back of season four. As this season has come out, uh, there have been a number of questions about things that we've said in the episodes, things that we haven't covered in the episodes, people have wanted clarifications on some stuff, our own thoughts, feelings, opinions have changed, and so we pulled our patron discord and asked what people would like us to cover, and this is going to be our whirlwind <laughs> coverage of those questions as well as some things that occurred to us throughout production of this season. A few things people asked us to talk about are really more research topics than discussion and could not go into this episode. Maybe they'll come up in a future episode or a bonus. We can't promise anything because we have so little ability to predict how the next seasons are going to go. But thank you all for your questions. A bunch of the questions we got were really about our sort of final thoughts on the movie, our overall impressions as, as viewers, as critics. And this is kind of a hard question to answer because when you watch a movie, as many times as we have watched this one, you kind of lose track of your initial impressions and you kind of lose track of whether it's good or not. It just becomes interesting. And this is definitely an interesting movie. However, I would say that for myself, I really like this movie. As Tatiana pointed out when we were talking to her about the technical production of the movie, there are a lot of things about it that are unusual and there are a lot of things about it that might be considered wrong. But despite all of that, I find it very compelling. I find it very interesting. And even after watching it, you know, 20 times or something, there are moments in it that still like get me emotionally. And I think that's pretty cool and pretty powerful. For my part, I do remember my initial reaction, which because of the way the movie is made and the pacing and everything was sort of a stunned wow. <laughs> I really liked it on that first watch. With additional watches, I felt occasionally frustrated <laughs> with this movie, that it's not more clear on certain things, that there is so much ambiguity to certain things about it, that despite being explicitly about something political, it doesn't seem to have clear political messaging to me. Uh, and then... I come right back to my initial <laughs> reaction of it after all the research we've done and all the watch throughs to saying, well, as an analyst, that lack of clarity might frustrate me, but as a viewer watching a movie and the movie as a sensory and emotional experience, two thumbs up, 
think it's excellent, <laughs> very much like this movie. I think that leads naturally into another question, which was now after watching three Gundam series, three compilation movies, and this standalone movie, which format do we think works better for Gundam, TV or movies? And which one are we more excited to see going forward? Ooh, uh, <laughs> this one is unfortunately colored by the facts of what we do. I think it's easier to cover TV shows in our format than it is to cover movies. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, I really liked this movie. It can clearly work well for certain types of Gundam stories. I'm certainly not anti-movie. I didn't love the compilation movies, but standalone films clearly can work very well. I think they're just different types of stories, right? And I don't think this movie could have been made without the background from the shows before it. This movie builds on what has come before so much and relies on that background. I think I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to say that with the exception of First Gundam, all the shows that we've watched have been too long. Zeta and Double Zeta both really mm. drag in sections. That's would fair. benefit significantly from some judicious editing to cut down on the bloat. And I think on the other hand, Shars Counterattack is like too much for one movie. It would be a better work, probably, if they hadn't tried to make it a movie. If they had made it maybe several movies, or if they had made it a short series, maybe six to 13 episodes, I think that would have been the ideal length for it. And, uh, you know, I think maybe we might have some, you know, six to 13 episode shows coming up. And I, I think I'm excited <laughs> for those. That is a total cop out because it's really not the question. Should the series be shorter is not the question. Like, yeah, most shows could be shorter. In general, I think the 8 to 13 episode season topping out at two seasons show is sort of an ideal length for most kinds of story. But that was not what we were asked. Well, you answered the question we were asked. You took that responsibility off of my plate. Speaking of the shows, one uh, patron asked us if we thought Char's Counterattack was a good conclusion for these previous three UC series. And their contention was that they felt it was a good conclusion for 0079, but not for Zeta and Double Zeta. I actually think it's a good conclusion for Zeta also. And I'm going to say it's a good conclusion for Double Zeta too. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Even with Char's total absence from that series. Yes. Tell me more. <laughs> um, before I get into defending my position on this, I want to point out that in the promotional materials ahead of this movie's release, in the trailers, for instance, that came out for it, they really leaned heavily on this idea that this was it. This was the last Gundam. This was the end of the story of the legend of Gundam. We know, of course, that that is not, in fact, what they ended up doing. And I sincerely doubt that it was ever seriously considered that they would never make another Gundam. But that is the angle that was present in the marketing. You can feel in the movie that this was intended to be the conclusion of things and that whatever came afterwards would have to be something very different. In terms of it as a conclusion to the various arcs, it is often said that the evolution of Quattro from Zeta to Char's counterattack doesn't make sense. 
that he was a good guy in Zeta, that he was committed to protecting the Earth and to waiting patiently for humankind to evolve to become new types, which is literally what he says in the theater scene in the final episode of Zeta. He says to Sirocco and uh, Haman, humankind is going to evolve naturally into new types, and I'm prepared to wait for that. I don't want to guide history down the wrong path. And then it's weird that he has completely changed his position by Char's counterattack. But I think that's a natural evolution for where Quattro was going. Like, Quattro was an identity that he created to try to escape from... Kasval. Yeah. Daikun. And the responsibility of being the leader. And his refusal to be the leader in Zeta is his main, like, character beat. And ultimately, he has to give it up. From the day of Dakar on, he agrees to become the leader, and I think from that point onward, his trajectory towards Char's counterattack was set. It is funny to me that he basically sat there in that theater scene listening to Haman and Sirocco and then said, you know, they have some pretty good ideas. But even that's not without precedent, because isn't there a scene in the uh, like med bay of their ship where they're talking about cyber new types and medical augmentation, Mm -hmm. and he's kind of speculating about the benefits of it. Yeah, and that's really significant because up until that scene, he had been really anti-cyber new types. He had, you know, in the Kilimanjaro arc, when they encounter four again, he does everything possible to keep Camille away from her. He says they should kill her. Like, he's very anti-cyber new types. But over the course of Zeta, he starts to think, maybe with science we could force everyone to become new types. And he kind of continues in that same vein into Char's counterattack. The reason I say that CCA is a good conclusion to double Zeta as well is because I think CCA Char represents a kind of combination of the philosophies of Sirocco and Haman. This was really revealed to me starkly when we saw that alternative script for the end of Double Zeta, uh-huh. where Haman basically says she wants to do what Shar tries to do in Shar's counterattack. This is dialogue that was cut from the actual release of Double Zeta, but Haman says that she wants to destroy Earth and all the people clinging to it. And so CCHR inherits those ideas and brings them to the fore again for one final confrontation. Not only does he inherit the philosophies of Sirocco and Haman, but he kind of inherits the whole look, the whole aesthetic and presentation of Girinzabi, even down to the way he like slicks his hair back and that big speech he gives that mimics Girin's speech from Garma's funeral. The reason I feel that it's a good conclusion for 0079 and Zeta is I actually, uh, even with the time jump, Char's trajectory makes sense to me If we look at these as movies about how power and the pursuit of our own goals can sort of corrupt us and lead us down dark paths. Especially as we get older. And so we get this foreshadow, you know, he is so upset about how Minerva is being used by Haman and that he tried to prevent this and that he tried to lead Neo Zeon down the right path. And so is it really so shocking that he would then go back to Neo Zeon and think like this time Neo Zeon will be led correctly by me? And in First Gundam, a big part of Char's arc is that he allows himself to be used by, to be consumed 
by this other larger organization, the Principality of Xeon, the Zabi family, in order to achieve his ultimate personal goal of getting revenge against the Zabis. We'll talk about Shar in a lot more depth later on, uh, but another question we got was, do we feel at this point, after watching the movie and talking about it for weeks, that we can sum up the movie's politics? And if so, what do we think they are? Which actually ties nicely to the idea of Tom's basically talked me around on CCA being a good conclusion to double Zeta, but not for the same reasons he gave. Oh, I see. These are both movies with very intense struggles that end feeling as though they have not really altered the status quo. I alluded in my overall assessment of the movie to the fact that I don't feel it states a clear, concise, pithy <laughs> purpose, point, moral, or anything like that, which in a lot of ways is reflective of the real-life politics most of us live in, that a lot of the points Char makes in his speeches are, like, good points. We know that the Earth Federation is messed up. We know that the Earth Federation mistreats a lot of people and that the current system is very entrenched and is not working, <laughs> except for the handful of people who are being enriched by it, right? Right. And after three shows, we know it's not a system that can be reformed. Like, the Earth Federation does need to be broken up, destroyed, dismantled. But what Shah is proposing wouldn't do that. And, like, every filmmaking trick that the movie has up its sleeves is deployed in order to present Char as duplicitous, evil, and wrong. And this may be my own, <laughs> my own ethics coloring my read of the end of the movie, but if the movie has a political message, I think it might be that the most meaningful action to save humanity, the most meaningful action to make our world better and to help other people is going to happen outside of any government-controlled entity. <laughs> it's not going to happen because of a government. <laughs> yeah, it's easy to read the ending of Char's counterattack and Amaro's position in it as essentially one advocating for incrementalist reform, slow change over time. But I don't think that holds up when you consider the prior shows. Because the message of Gundam, especially in Zeta and to a somewhat lesser degree in, in First Gundam and in Double Zeta, has been young people need to make these decisions. The old people in charge need to get out of the way and allow the young people who have a clearer view of such things to define what the future is going to be like. Although in Double Zeta, the end of the show kind of seems to indicate like, Ah, yes, the young kids know how things should be, but society won't let them change anything, so they're better off charting their own course and, like, trying not to worry about it. <laughs> uh, but with respect to Amuro and CCA, despite a very sympathetic portrayal, I do feel that the movie is ultimately critical of people like Amuro and Bright, who are clearly aware of and uncomfortable with the role that they play as part of this institution. Mm -hmm. They know the space noids hate their guts. They know they're being sent to like surveil <laughs> all these people who have very reasonable grievances. So this actually connects to another question that we were asked, which is, I think, mostly directed at me, but like, what elements from High Streamer and Beltorchka's children would I have liked to see incorporated into the movie? And 
I'm going to take this a little bit more broadly to mean where do I think the movie uh, could be improved by the addition of some additional context and content. And the big place for me is Londo Bell, Amaro and Bright. I want to know more about what this organization is, how long it's been around, what its activities are, what are Bright and Amaro's feelings, how long have they been involved? Like I mentioned in a prior episode that in, I think the Beltorchka's children version, Bright has only been in space for a month. I think that context can color how compromised we see Bright and Amaro being. I would just like a clearer understanding of where Amaro is because the context of the movie really does reduce his political position to gotta stop Shar. Like, everything else has to wait, gotta stop Shar. Slash, the vibe I get from him most often is one which I think a lot of us are familiar with, but person who is working for an organization and his values don't necessarily uh, completely line up with that organization's values. He has a lot of problems with the... Federation forces, the Federation period. And we all in our lives sort of draw lines about, well, I don't agree with everything this company does, but my disagreement is not at a level where I can't work for them versus I disagree with what this company does and ethically cannot bring myself to work for them. Mm -hmm. Any sufficiently large organization under the current system is going to be morally compromised. And the Federation is the largest organization we can imagine. Yeah. And again, not to say that Amro doesn't have other options and that there's nothing questionable about his uh, continuing to work for the Federation, but that most of us in our lives make those kinds of compromises on the regular. And that's something that has been consistent throughout Gundam. Like in first Gundam, Amro didn't like the military, didn't want to be a soldier, but because he wanted to protect his friends, because he wanted to defeat Shar, because he wanted to end the war, he found himself compelled to join and remain part of the Federation forces. Ayug, for all of its merits, was also deeply compromised, basically an armed wing of Anaheim Electronics, certainly taking orders from them. In the early part of Zeta, Camille didn't really want to be part of it, but he wanted to defeat the Titans, and so he was willing to accept that compromise. Judo did not want to be a soldier, but again, had reasons that he was willing to compromise a little bit and work for Ayug. This is making me think about a different question that we got, which was, what do we consider the necessary viewing leading up to CCA? Which is a nice counterpart to the, is it a good conclusion for the series question. And interesting to think about how differently a person might view this movie if they've only seen some of the preceding series, but not all. Mm -hmm. Because so much of our feeling about the totally inexcusable wrongness of Char's plan is grounded in stuff that we see in Double Zeta. Yes, absolutely. And without Double Zeta, we probably wouldn't be as critical. I mean, it's still mass murder that he wants to commit, but... I don't think we would feel it as strongly or feel the like systemic prejudice in it and the racism in it so strongly if we hadn't watched the Africa arc of mm -hmm, Double Zeta, mm -hmm. if we hadn't seen all of these Earthnoids who are not the elites, not the privileged, fighting for their homelands. Yeah, and if you just come out of First Gundam, Earth looks deserted. 
Earth is almost completely depopulated. Right. The bits we do see are things like the mansion in New York and... And Jaburo, and then vast stretches of nothing, ruined cities, towns with 10 inhabitants. And so, yeah, if you come right out of First Gundam, you're going to have a very different impression. In Zeta, we see a very, like, middle class, for the most part, Earth. Uh, and so that's going to give you a different impression. So I would say I think necessary watching for Char's counterattack is all of it or none of it. Mm. I'm just not sure I would care about this movie or understand it at all if I hadn't seen the other shows first. Char's counterattack was the first Universal Century thing that I watched and I liked it. Okay. But I'm a mecha nerd. I'm the target audience. And to be fair, I think we gave Tatiana like a two-page summary of what happens in those first couple shows and she still enjoyed watching the movie. So it's possible, certainly. I think it was a better experience for having watched the shows. But of course I think that or I wouldn't <laughs> be doing this project. Uh, somebody asked if we thought Sela should have been in this movie. Would it have been a better movie with Sela? And I'll say what I have said about Sela's absence in everything so far, which is good for her. <laughs> uh, I think according to like secondary materials, she's working as a venture capitalist now. Oh, ew. I thought like she a, founded like an, an orphanage or something. I mean, that's in a different thing. But where did the money for that orphanage come from, Nina? I think Sela's absence from the movie does not, in my mind, materially make the movie worse. But it does make Sela's story very different and I think worse for her. Mm. Her choice to opt out of this whole struggle. Right. Especially after popping up at the end of Double Zeta to be like, my brother's out there planning something. I bet it's bad and we're going to need to do something about it. And then to have her just like peace out for the movie. I we're going to talk about this some more when we talk about Char. Uh, but given some of what we have learned over the course of making this season, given all that Tale of Genji stuff that I mentioned, uh, I think having Sela in this movie would perhaps overcomplicate the like romantic, sexual, and relationship dynamics around Char in a way that the movie like couldn't resolve or sustain. Like it would just be too much. I do have to note here that. Uh, at the end of Beltorchka's Children, the final illustration in the book is of a locket that Char has that has Sela's picture in it. And this is after Amuro has succeeded, um, after it looks like Axis is not going to hit Earth. Char says something like, well, this is a good result for Artesia, who is down there. So he was aware that he was going to kill his sister. Yes. Yeah. I... <laughs> uh having to deal with Char and Sela's relationship in this movie, they couldn't have done it. I don't think there's any way they could have satisfactorily had that in here. I just had a terrible idea, which is imagine this movie if instead of Kara, they had Sela and it was all the same story beats down to her getting killed by Gune, but it was it was the established Sela character. She, Nina just made a horrible face. No, it, it bad. And making the disgusted face from the disgusted slash thinking about it meme. <laughs> Although, on the other hand, Sela would look pretty good with that haircut. <sighs> but I have said before, Sela's presence would complicate the movie, but in a way that I would like, because she would introduce this ambiguity 
over the legacy of Xian Daikun because she would be the other Daikun. She could offer an alternative view on that legacy versus what Shar has come up with. She also complicates our view of Shar's relationships. We've only seen the two of them interact very briefly in a couple of scenes, really, but it does seem he is more honest with her and less manipulative of her than he is of people in general. And I'm not clear, based off of the interactions we've seen between the two of them, where she would fit into his like creepy spectrum of wanting all women to be Lala slash his mother. I feel like the Sela role is a category that he doesn't engage with very often of the kind of perpetual little sister. I think he has never allowed his construct of Sela to grow beyond the little blonde girl calling after him as he leaves. The small, gentle girl who needs protecting, not this quote-unquote strong, independent woman. Perhaps too strong. Speaking of characters, we were asked about our favorite new characters. I quite liked Chen. I thought she was neat. Yeah, I think all of the women introduced in CCA are quite well realized. I think Chen, Kaira, Rezin, and Nanai all feel like, to my mind, very distinct characters. It's good seeing all of them and all of them getting different things to do, even if I wish Rezin had gotten more to do. And Tom has won me over on Rezin. She has almost no personality beyond being sort of brash and abrasive, but the character design is really fun. And how can I not love her when, <laughs> when her name gets auto-translated by a bunch of the like translation programs as lesbian? <laughs> it's true. If you ever see her custom Giradoga gunpla for sale somewhere, uh, it is often uh, machine translated to lesbian custom use Giradoga. <laughs> it's good that you came around on resin because I did use podcast funds to pay for several art commissions involving her. <laughs> I saw one of them. The other bad, one's not done yet. Bad vibes, the squad. As long as we're talking about favorites, we also had a request to talk about the mobile suits. What are our favorites? I remain not a huge mobile suits person, even after watching this movie so many times. But to Tom's great disappointment, I really like the new Gundam. It's the worst Gundam they've introduced so far. Sorry. Complete disagree. <laughs> I really like the new. One patron talked about an impression they had that the new feels like a maturation, which I think mostly comes down to, one, the more sophisticated use of the funnels, that they do this shielding, that they... Uh, What's well, the first Gundam to have funnels, isn't it? The Psycho Gundam Mark II kind of has funnels, but whatever. Okay. Obviously a, a development, a sophistication. Uh, but also the color palette, which is one of the things I like about it. I don't love the primary colors and white color scheme. Uh, the new Gundam is white and black and yellow. Or very dark blue. Or very dark blue, okay. <laughs> Point being, fewer colors, darker colors... I tend to associate primary colors with children in my head. That's I feel like a lot of kids' stuff is done up in bright primary colors. That's when you're learning basic color theory versus you know darker and more sophisticated looking stuff. So I think that's probably why it looks more mature. It's certainly part of why I like it better. I agree that it looks more mature, that it is an 
evolution, a maturation of the original Gundam. But personally, I think that line of development reached its apex with the Gundam Mark II. And I liked the Gundam Mark II also. And I just think that the Gundam Mark II is better than the new Gundam in every conceivable way. Hmm. You've always had questionable tastes. Ugh. (laughs) I cannot work under these conditions. (laughs) I would say Shars Counterattack on the whole knocks it out of the park on the mobile suit designs. I don't think there's a bad one in it. I don't love the Alpha Ajiru, but it's fine. And I think all the others, the Giradoga, the Yacht Doga, the Jagan, the Rigazi, they're all absolutely aces. Hobby Hyzak. I mean, you gotta love the <laughs> Hobby Hyzak. The Sazabi is an all-time great. But my favorite is the on-screen for about half a second, Jim 3 from the end when the Federation fleets all come to help push the asteroid back. Really? I just love Jim 3s. I thought your favorite was the Sazabi. I'm I mean, learning new things. The Sazabi is definitely my second favorite. I guess the thing that I need to know for future They don't reasons. make a kit of it. Oh, nuts. Well, they make a high grade that's really old, but what I want is a master grade. Well, there you have it, folks. Tell Bondi, we demand a Gym 3 master grade. <laughs> I think it's the only mobile suit in Char's Counterattack that doesn't have a 1-100 scale kit yet. The Alpha Ajiru doesn't either, but it's a mobile armor. Those don't count. I'm sitting here thinking about the Hobby Hyzak and how, uh, I don't know if they have a kit of it specifically, but you could just paint a Hyzak the right colors. <laughs> I think I know who's getting a Hyzak in their Christmas stocking. We don't have an airbrush, but I am picturing, I feel like I wouldn't just do pastel colors. I would want kind of like a frosted effect. I would want to top Ooh. coat it so that it's... Hobby Hyzak Nina custom. Yeah, I don't know. I find the painting, thinking about the painting, very fun, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I've only ever done hand-painted stuff and even enjoyed that, so. As long as we're on the topic of mobile suits uh, and the new Gundam specifically, someone asked about Amuro's insignia, which was introduced in this movie. There are two of them, um, one on his shoulder and one on his shield. They're similar enough that you can tell that they're related. And the insignia on the shield is of a unicorn. The question asked was, where do we think this comes from? Why a unicorn? Is the connection just that they are both, quote, white devils? Uh, And I wanted to take this opportunity to point out that at this point in time, actually, Amro has not been referred to as the white devil. Neither has the Gundam. Those are going to come later. In First Gundam, they do refer to him as like, I think the Zian guys say, Renpo no Shiroi Yatsu like the Federation's white Yeah, that guy. The Federation's white jerk. (laughs) The white devil thing is going to come significantly later. So it's definitely not that. The symbol on his shoulder is a stylized A in the same way that the symbol on the Sazabi's hip is a stylized CD. And then that A evolved into the unicorn. And I don't know this for certain. This is purely speculation, but I think Maybe it's because of the asymmetrical look of the new Gundam and how the uh, the funnels sticking up on one side kind of look like a single horn if if you squint and turn your head a little bit. Because it is worth noting that this symbol is on the new Gundam, but it's not on the Rigazi. So while it is an Amaro symbol, it does seem to be a new Gundam specific Amaro symbol. 
Speaking of favorites, we were also asked about our favorite CCA memes, to which I will loyally say all the ones Tom made. Thank you. I mean, not all of them. There were definitely favorites among them. I particularly liked the Char as Dr. Manhattan one. I'm tired of this place. These people. (laughs) I'm tired of being caught in the tangle of their lives. I know there were some other ones too, but... That Are You My Mother picture book was pretty good. I am going to continue my theme of kind of cheating here because my favorite CCA meme isn't really a meme at all, but it lives in my head in the same space as memes. And if it were modern, we might even call it a meme, but it's a piece of promotional art that I think Kitazume, the character designer, did that was published as a poster in New Type magazine. And it's Char from CCA, and he's standing there on the poster and he's got his arms crossed. And behind him, in like grayscale, we can see the heads of Quest, Lala, and Haman. And at the bottom, it just says, I am murderer. And I have not stopped thinking about that <laughs> since I saw it for the first time like 10 years ago. It's just a constant cycle running in the back of Tom's head. Shar is murderer. One area that we would have liked to talk more about but did not quite have the resources and time to do so is music. Like with filmmaking, this is an area where we just do not have the competency to talk about uh, like composition and how this relates to other composition for films at the same time or where it fits into film music history. Uh, I did do a research piece about Saigusa a while back in season two, I believe. And this was still Saigusa, apparently. Yep. Although the one thing I will say as the uh, totally uneducated on music commentator than I am is that the music felt more subtle than it had in the TV shows. Uh, it drew less attention to itself. It felt more like what I think of as a typical film score where it sort of blends into the action of the film. Uh, as opposed to the music from many of the Gundam series, in particular the battle music, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Gallant Char, the one from the beginning of Zeta, I want to say, that sort of techno-y, pieces that really stood out even in the midst of the action that was happening. This is, by the way, uh, Sayugusa's last jaunt with Gundam. There are like two moments, I think, in Char's Counterattack where the music really stands out. Uh, And one of them is when everybody is getting ready to leave for the final battle. The piece starts when Mirai and Chaemin look up to see that horrifying shot of Axis passing in front of the sun. And I think this is when Hathaway is writing his will. Uh, and Amuro is sort of slowly pulling away from Chen to go get into the new Gundam. And we get this just gut-wrenching, dreadful, climactic music. And even now, just hearing that song gives me feels. And then, of course, Beyond the Time. Beyond the Time is excellent. I mean, it's a, like... Well, you feel like Beyond the Time recontextualizes the whole movie. Oh, I mean, yeah, totally. I think, you know, like in Double Zeta, where Silent Voice was Haman's song by Haman about Haman, Beyond the Time is Shar and Amuro's song. It's about the feelings between the two of them. And 
I think like I think you need to watch the movie within the context of the lyrics of Beyond the Time. We were asked to speak specifically about the saxophone solo in Beyond the Time. And all I can say about that is it's good. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. It certainly marks the piece as existing in a particular part of music history. Mm -hmm. I feel like those kinds of saxophone solos were really big in the 80s. But other than that, I don't know what to say about it. Well, and um, the band that played Beyond the Time, TM Network, was as I understand it, really big at the time. This was a big get for Sunrise. Uh, and it was it was a part of the marketing for the movie. The trailers for oh, this wow. movie are like, and featuring Beyond the Time by TM Network. Okay. Maybe that's why they put it right at the end. So that if you came just for the song, you had to watch the whole movie. Uh, before we get into my predictions for what happens next in the Universal Century... We did have a few takeaways on our process. This was a unique season. We hadn't done a season like this before. When we'd covered movies before, they were compilations and so did not need like an entirely separate season about them. There's a clear trade-off that we make between having more time to do things in each episode, whether that's scheduling interviews, editing, research, what have you, doing things out of chronological order in terms of how they're going to be released once they go into episodes, which makes our workflow less stressful. However, it also means that I'm more removed from the content by the time we get it out and have had a much harder time interacting with listeners about it because I don't remember what I said when we talked to Colin, (laughs) at least not not verbatim, not in Mm -hmm. detail. Uh, And The furthest back of these interviews happened in early September. Yeah, we did five interviews for this season. And I don't know if people realize this, but the process of arranging those interviews, prepping for them, conducting them, editing them, reviewing the edited versions with the guests, all of that took an entire month, both of us working full time on it. And while I like the depth that we got from that, that each of these episodes feels very focused and we take one topic and run with it more than any other season we've done. I feel as though how I feel now was probably not entirely expressed in any of those interviews because we've had so much more time to think and research and talk about the show even since we did those recordings. So, uh, in some ways, it helps the process, but in some ways, it makes it harder because I don't entirely remember what we did early on. Yeah. On the other hand, having extra time to do research was incredibly helpful. For you. For me. Normally, when we're making the podcast, we have a week, two weeks at the most to do a research project, and that's on top of everything else that we have to do for the episode. Whereas here, I was able to take more time. I was able to ask people for help and get resources that I would not have been able to get if we had been crunched in the way we are for a normal season. My problem is that while I have appreciated having some more time to work on certain things, uh, partially because of other podcast tasks that I handle, like a lot of the administration stuff, and partially just because of my work style, I don't work very well unless I'm under a deadline of some kind. And so beginning this season with a sort of amorphous, like, 
oh, just like do some research and then we'll see, meant that I basically got nothing done until we actually pinpointed what I was going to be researching and when those pieces needed to be done. One listener did ask uh, if we were planning to do this same process again for future movies. And I can only say that we will definitely be taking some lessons from it. I think there were some really good aspects to this season and probably some things that we need to improve. So no, no future season will ever be exactly like this one. But um, but no doubt our coverage for future movies will be at least inspired by how we handled this one. I'm not certain when we'll get there. Maybe we'll never get there. But I am constantly predicting that eventually we are going to come upon shows and movies that we just don't have as much to say about <laughs> uh, and that we will cover at a faster clip. You know, future movies might only get two episodes or one and might get lumped with shows or certain shows might be covered in a way where we're covering multiple show episodes per podcast episode. It's really going to depend on the show in question, but I assume that at some point we will have less to say. Astonishing, I know. Finally, we want to answer three questions that were asked of us that are all kind of linked together. Um, the first one is, what exactly do we mean when we say that Char is unknowable in this movie? And I would say principally what I mean is that a huge portion of the movie is devoted to showing us that no one in this movie understands Char. No one knows what he's thinking, what he wants, what his ultimate goals are, or even what his next actions are going to be. And most of the characters spend a lot of time speculating and theorizing and arguing about that question. As the audience, we have another vantage point. We are privileged to the knowledge that Shar is dissembling, that he's lying to all of these different people. We see a little bit of his interiority at a couple of points that is not available to other people. And by the end of the movie, we get some revelations about him that allow us to kind of anachronistically project that knowledge back onto earlier parts of the movie. But for the characters around him, Shar remains an enigma. With a couple of notable exceptions, though, right? Because there are a few characters who behave as though they really know him, who talk about him as though they know what he's going to do. And those people are Amuro, Lala, <laughs> Lala Ghost, uh, and Mirai, <laughs> one of the times we touch base with her. And yet even Amuro is shocked by the revelation at the end when Char says, I wanted Lala to be a mother to me. For all that Amaro knows Char pretty well, he is still taken completely off guard by that. Sure. I suppose if we want to be <laughs> very meta about this, Shar uh, is unknowable in the way that all human beings are unknowable. How well do any of us understand ourselves, much less another person? How well do any of our statements hold up to scrutiny if someone <laughs> is trying to form a cohesive idea of who we are? Uh, and frankly, the same for our behavior. <laughs> and yet that's kind of unusual for fictional characters, because True. unlike real people, the fictional character must be knowable, at least to the author, at least kind of. And it's worth pointing out that it isn't simply that he's fleshed out like a human being, he also cultivates that sense of mystery. He doesn't tell other people much about himself or his thoughts, uh, and he is so many different personas to so many different people. 
that he cultivates that sense that nobody really knows. Like, he created that. I don't know if he realized that he was doing it. I don't know if it was purposeful to hide himself in that way, but it's absolutely a result of his behavior. Do you think that maybe the guy who faked his death and took on an alias might have some interest in keeping people at arm's length? Even now that they all know he's Kasval Daikun? But is he? A related question comes to us as, what do we mean when we say that Shar has no ideology? And when I've talked about this on prior episodes of the podcast, I think I've tried to say that Shar has no consistent ideology, because he says so many different things to so many different people in so many contexts. What he is saying to Amuro in battle is different from what he is saying when he's giving his big speech at Sweetwater. What he is saying to Nanai is different. Whether he's interested in punishment or elevation, whether he is interested in building a government for the refugees, all of these things are possible different angles on his ideology. But then at the end of the movie, <laughs> when it is revealed that he gave Amuro the psycho frame, that undermines everything he's said. If those goals were so important, why would he risk not being able to achieve them by giving Amuro this very powerful weapon? It is a monumental act of self-sabotage, which undermines any claim that he's really doing this for any of the many ideological reasons he's expressed. It strongly suggests that all he really wants is one last big epic fair fight with his rival. Or even that he, he really does want to fulfill his mission. He wants to cause this massive destruction. You know, there are reasons he gives and reasons we assume. And <laughs> but that at the same time, he thinks someone should stop him. I, you know, it's um, human psychology is complicated. Maybe he's trying to goad other people into finally making the changes that they need to make. Maybe this is the example of where things are headed if they don't commit to some drastic change. If his whole goal in this whole operation was to create a scenario where there would be a mass new type awakening, why is he distressed at the end when a mass new type awakening happens? Yeah, well, which is why I say, like, he clearly sabotages himself. And there's a sense that he wants Amuro to stop him. But he also really did want to succeed. Though perhaps he only wants that because succeeding would, in a sense, be victory over Amuro. Even if he loses the mobile suit fight, he still wins the ultimate conflict. As I brought up in the Kisho Tenketsu piece earlier, it's very possible that the goal is not really the point of this story, that the point of all of this action, the point of everything that's been happening is to build up to this reveal about Char's essential core flaw, <laughs> the thing internal to himself that has been fueling all of his problems and like obstructing him in his life all this time and forcing him to confront that. And the pursuit of this goal helps illuminate that flaw. The pursuit of this goal leads us to the right place, uh, but it's not really the point from the perspective of the construction of the narrative. And then the final question is a particularly contentious one that has roiled the fandom ever since this movie came out. Is Char actually a pedophile, as Gune says in the movie? Of course, many people will say that Gune is not a reliable interlocutor here. He does have reason to lie. 
Um, although in the context where he's trying to talk quests out of her infatuation with Char, saying there's a possibility Char might actually be interested in you doesn't seem like a galaxy-brained strategic move on Gune's part. But no, leaving that aside. But, but also, you know, she might think that she is this special exception and it pointing out to her that, no, he actually has a pattern of behavior that this fits into is, you know, attempting to disabuse her of that idea. I get it. There is, however, other support for this within the movie. Nanai also with her line about, I can't believe he fell for that brat. I thought he had changed his ways. She thinks he's interested in Quest. The reaction of the crew when Quest confronts him about, am I just a replacement for Lala? All of these soldiers have heard the rumors. There's also metatextual support. First of all, the whole setup for Shar's deal in this movie, that he had this very significant relationship with Lala, that she died tragically, that he was never able to realize the relationship with her that he wanted, um, and that he has been hung up on her ever since, seeking out Lala types like Quest and trying to recreate that experience ever since, matches pretty much perfectly the backstory, if you will, for Humbert Humbert, the protagonist of Lolita, who also had a tragic relationship with a young woman when he was younger. She died. He has been hung up on her ever since, at least according to his own self-serving narrative. Char's pattern of looking for substitutes for sort of relationship gaps in his life and trying to create or recreate relationships that he had previously also as i pointed out in the research matches up with some aspects of the tale of genji and when genji kidnaps murasaki she is a young child tomino has kind of obliquely commented about this a listener christopher uh, informed us about an interview that he gave around the time of the movie that came out and uh, tom asnable was able to find a japanese blog that had posted the text of the interview we commissioned a translation of the relevant questions. Um, and in this interview, Tomino is asked, why was Mineva Zabi not a character in the movie? And in his answer, Tomino says, you should just assume that Char forgot about Mineva because otherwise this would be a completely different story. It would be the story of Char and Mineva. And that's a story that he didn't want to tell. And part of the reason for that is he says, if Char really does have a Lolita complex, as is touched on in the film, then one way or another, that would cause Mineva to suffer, to be bullied, um, to be essentially harassed by someone in a position of power over her, that it would be a kind of torture for her, and that Tomino doesn't like those kinds of stories and doesn't want to write one. Which felt particularly significant to me because we see Char manipulate and mistreat Quess. We see him manipulate Nanai and other people around him. And so whatever Tomino imagines would be happening between Shar and Minerva is worse than what's shown happening between Shar and Quest. And in the interview, Tomino does not say Shar has a Lolita complex, Shar is a pedophile, and therefore, but if Shar weren't, then there wouldn't be a problem putting Mineva in the movie which means that either Tomino thinks Char does have a Lolita complex or it was very important to him to maintain the ambiguity in the movie because putting Mineva in the movie would necessitate clarifying one way or the other. And so Tomino wanted to keep open that possibility space. 
Now, there's also evidence in the movie that Char is not. He says in the movie that he had no interest in Quest, and it's in a moment when we can expect him to be relatively honest. He also makes clear that the relationship he's really trying to recreate is not a romantic one. It's a maternal one that he maybe never had. We've heard, I don't think, anything about Char's mother ever. And that in his relationship with Lala, despite the romantic manipulations involved, he wanted her to fulfill a mother role, speaks to the fact that he's not necessarily trying to cultivate a sexual relationship. He's trying to cultivate a care relationship. He wants a woman who will take care of him. But one thing that we have seen over and over again with Char very consistently throughout his entire time in the show is that he is willing to use romantic intimacy to try to manipulate and control and retain women who are important to him and who he thinks are slipping away from him. When Lala started to connect with Amaro, Char responds by kissing her, by creating that romantic intimacy. When Rekoa is drifting away... He basically shrugs and goes, okay, if you want, I guess, I'll kiss you. <laughs> exactly. Quattro does the same thing, much less successfully. And then when there's tension with Nanai in the movie, what does he do? He makes these gestures of romantic intimacy towards her in order to keep her. And then there's Quess, who, when she says she loves him, he very honestly blurts out that that's a problem until she says, I would do anything for you or I would die for you or something like that. And then he's like, well, on balance, I guess I can humor. <laughs> yeah, I guess I can humor you then. I mean, he says, I'll forget about Nanai and Lala. So while he doesn't do anything physical with her, he's still willing to pretend at a romantically intimate relationship in order to try to control her. And there's no reason to think that he hasn't done that before. So I guess in response to this question, I would say the movie and the shows that preceded it give us lots of reasons to believe that, like many powerful men, Shar has a pattern of abusing and exploiting young girls. That the people around him earnestly believe that he is doing or will do the same thing to Quest. We have seen him use physical intimacy to try to control women in the past. There is a lot of smoke there, and I'm personally not inclined to give him much benefit of the doubt. But we cannot know for certain what he has done off-screen or what his internal motivations for those actions were. There is evidence in the movie that his interest in quests is pure, cynical opportunism. But if the actions are the same, does it matter what his internal motivations were? My contention remains that Char has never been romantically interested in anyone. Or sexually. Just a manipulation tactic. What about Garma? Oh, okay, maybe Garma. <laughs> okay, you, you got me there. Now, I would love to hear your predictions. So because I actually know the name of the next series we're covering, I know we hop backwards in time a little bit. But in terms of within the Universal Century, chronologically, what do I think happens after... Char's counterattack. Uh, I do think there's probably a change in the balance of power. I don't necessarily see all of the uh, Earth Federation government going back to Earth now that this is all over and they've already moved to space. Some of them probably go back to Earth, but I, I imagine a lot of the government stays in space from here on out. 
In this immediate aftermath, I guess I would expect some of the concessions that people wanted to be honored, a certain amount of power being less concentrated in the hands of the Federation and a little more dispersed, uh, but only in the short term, <laughs> not necessarily as a long-lasting thing. And with that somewhat more distributed power and control, potentially some conflicts between the sort of like new centers of power that emerge. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're imagining a period of decentralization with regional power centers growing relative to the central government and then getting into fights with each other. Yes. And if you just had to take a guess, next time Tomino comes back to Gundam, how far into the future do you think we're going to jump? Oh, a lot. Um, I mean, I want to say something like a hundred years or like, <laughs> like nobody we knew is still alive. Okay. One of the things that particularly struck me in the Kyushu Tenketsu and other like story structure research uh, and reminded me of a quote from when Tomino was interviewed at Anime NYC a couple years ago when we were there. And Tomino said about Reconquista that that story happened because the people of the universal century learned nothing. <laughs> and I was reminded in the, the story research that the theory why many uh, East Asian stories don't necessarily have like a nice tidy conclusion and denouement is this sense that there are no endings. Everything just keeps going <laughs> forever. And whatever uh, solutions we find, whatever problems we address, even that's temporary. <laughs> whatever benefits come out of this thing that happened, there will just be new problems to deal with. You know, any solution will eventually stop working and need to be replaced by something else. So I think Tomino would probably jump way into the future, partially as just a change of pace. It frees you from having to worry so much about what exactly happened in previous series and what did I say about so-and-so and this and that and the other. Uh, but it also really hammers home the like, ah, yes, and we still have the same problems, <laughs> even though it's been a hundred years. When MSB returns, Christmas Day for subscribers, New Year's Day for everyone, it will be to begin our Season 5 coverage of another SD Gundam short. And... 0080 War in the Pocket. All I know is the title and the cover art, and I am already really excited. As we bid goodbye to Char's counterattack, all I can say is... We can share the happiness. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us. Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout, 
The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that Char's pink Zaku was actually red. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from Rowan. Thanks, Rowan. And this is a complex question to answer when there's a truck outside backing up. Delete that. Delete it from existence. <laughs> no one should ever hear it. My snake plant has yet another baby. Ooh. If only I had a pot to put the main snake plant in. I'm sure it's like very cramped in its current one. I'm gonna have to dig it out, cut all the baby plants free, mm-hmm. put them in their own pots, and then put the big one in a bigger pot than it had before, which I don't currently have. It also is very complex. It is. I described uh, getting into plants to Tom as a chip and dip problem, which is that you have all these plants, so you need planters. And then you often buy planters in sets, so you end up with planters that don't have any plants in them. So you get more plants. And then your plants outgrow their planters, so they need (laughs) new planters, which leaves you with empty little planters that are just begging for new little plants. I guess we could invent some sort of, like, not biodegradable, but, like, bioconsumable pot. So as the plant grows, it, like, eats its old pot. When the when the pot has completely disappeared, that's when you need a new <laughs> new pot. <laughs> Sounds messy. Yeah. Two, two thirds. <laughs> We're not going to spend more than a third of this talking about Shar, are we? <laughs> and now for my research piece, which I have helpfully titled "Names, Names, Names." Obviously, the titles don't matter. I don't put them in, but you know, they're in my notes. Nina, if you're wondering why I said it so many times, I'm not confident of my pronunciation. For 0079 and Zeta. Ugh, I hate when they do that. I can't believe we live in a timeline where I'm thinking, oh no, I forgot to charge my lamp. like our human beings with limitations. <laughs> <laughs>